Welcome to the podcast. It's the worst territory in the world. Personalities, history, and other stories. We know you're craving for more knowledge. Let the champions get their glory. It's the worst territory in the world. All right, everybody, it is that time, your favorite time of the week. Welcome to the worst territory in the world, where we discuss the worst territory in the world. I'm your host, Gabe Miller, sitting here with Chris Goff. Chris, how are we doing this week? Pretty good, Gabe. I'm looking forward to another week here as we tick down into uh, 2023. You know, you and I were just talking about Royal Rumble, WrestleMania season coming up, but also, uh, you know, like I I continue to get pretty good feedback on us talking about not only just old school Central States, Kansas City stuff, but also the NWL stuff. Uh, We're taking a break from that this week because this week our interview, Gabe, is uh, a guy, I guess you never got to meet him. He came around NWL a little bit. Of course, you weren't around during the Metro Pro Days before NWL, but uh, he is... He went by all that and the missile, Matt Murphy, uh, <laughs> and he was uh, the first, technically the first full-time graduate of the Harley Race Wrestling Academy. He talks about how um, I think he beat Trevor Murdoch by like just just days, weeks, you know, by okay. being uh, the first one ever. But he was there when it and when Harley really sunk his teeth into being a independent wrestling promoter in the Midwest, which I always found fascinating because, of course, Harley Race, when he was in his prime, uh, you know, wrestling, obviously one of the best. But when he got into independent wrestling, you know, that was a time, Gabe, you know, we're talking late 90s Mm. when obviously wrestling was huge, but there wasn't a ton of, you know, past world champions running wrestling schools. And, uh, you know, he made a name for himself in, in the Midwest here and Matt Murphy was there for all of it. Wow. I can't wait to hear that interview. So we got that coming up and we got to talk about some news and notes. I wish I had, you know, we should have like a little like like news from around the world as we discuss some of the latest and uh, well, dare I say greatest wrestling news from around the world world. Now, Chris, last time we got together, um, unfortunately um, we had, I think we literally recorded the NWL episode on the day of Jay Briscoe's passing. Um, Now, we here in the wrestling business, we're very used to, unfortunately, the passing of of wrestlers, whether it's by old age, which has been happening, or more often than not, some sort of nefarious or uh, tragedy as far as drug overdoses, that kind of thing. This one was a little bit different in the fact that Jay was driving his kids to cheerleading practice when he was hit head on by a driver coming in from the uh, the oncoming traffic. Um, Jay was killed, and so was the driver of the other truck. Um, now, I've been a huge Briscoe Brothers fan. I mean, I don't think it's any secret. Me and you are definitely different trains of thought as far as wrestling goes. I'm, especially when I came in into the company, into NWL, I'm, I was much more of a like little indie guy, like PWG and Ring of Honor and all that kind of <laughs> stuff, especially the heyday of Ring of, Ring of Honor. But the Briscoe brothers, I, in my opinion, maybe one of the best tag teams in the last, you know, decade plus um, since they really started coming into their own. What was your exposure to the Briscoe brothers? Did you ever try to get them in Metro Pro? You know, I never met the Briscoe brothers. I never got to work with them. Um, you know, when they were in, uh, when I was doing Metro Pro, I never, I never looked into them mainly because 
they were pretty big stars even then. And also, yeah. you know, obviously the budget to bring in a tag team is always, uh, you know, not, not always on the <laughs> top fun. of your list, <laughs> but uh, I was much more into um, not that, you know, we brought in Christopher Daniels, we brought yeah. in other like pure worker guy, kind of guys like that. But I was always more into bringing the, um, you know, the 1980s guys mm-hmm. in because I was, uh, that was just sort of uh, what I thought the crowd that we had was more into. We didn't really have necessarily in the Midwest. I know it's a shock, Gabe, but we weren't necessarily way into the PWG crowd here. <laughs> so um, they, I don't know if uh, Game Changer Wrestling would go over like crazy here. I don't but, think it uh, would. I don't, I don't think, think it would either, uh, especially I saw their last. I was I just not to even bury them because, you know, you have you 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 do what you do now. You have what you have. But like right. I told my friends, I go, this is a card for, quote unquote, the best indie in the world right now. And it was the card upcoming card. And I, I just was it was lackluster to say the least i i don't like it but i but maybe that's just what's out there because everyone right. is getting signed up aew and nxt or whatever else i mean that was the changing landscape when i was still doing independent wrestling i was looking around i'm like you know we had some good guys but that was also a time when you know that was when nxt was ballooning to like 250 you know they had so many people on the roster on right. WWE, not just nxt but their entire roster and i was like man if all these guys of any value get signed up. What are you left with? You know, um, sort of like college basketball, I guess you would get used to the new normal, which is a, a step or two lower than what you had before. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I know going back to the Briscoes though, like they have always had like a great uh, reputation as far as people uh, inside and outside the ring. I did find it obviously, you know, whatever your political thoughts are on, uh, on what people say uh, online, you know, Jay obviously had uh, a, a dark cloud hanging over him from a tweet that he did years ago because he is a man of Christian faith and he did not agree with uh, alternative lifestyles. And he said something on Twitter. Now, I have told, uh, I've, you know, my oldest child that, you know, please just understand, even at your age, anything he doesn't have social media, but I explained to him, like, do not put right. anything out there that you ever want, like brought up at 20 years from now. I think we've seen that all you know, gosh, we've seen this uh, evolve in the last decade where, you know, right. if you if someone writes something just ridiculous, just being stupid, you know, even when you're a teenager, it will be brought up when you're trying to be a Supreme Court justice or whatever. I mean, right. it's just and so, Jay, um, you know, so much has been said on Jim Cornette's show and just in general about how he was not being in, uh, allowed to be on AEW. They weren't even allowed to. Well, I guess they are now. But right after he passed away, they weren't allowed to even have a tribute to him. Right which I'm sure you're shaking your head because I'm sure you thought that was ridiculous. Ridiculous. Uh, the, guy, the guy was killed in a tragic, like you said, this is what makes this even worse is it's not, not exactly obviously like Owen Hart, but it is a something that uh, was through no fault of his own. It sounds like, I guess, preliminary talk was that it was the other driver's fault that it swerved Correct. over. That's what I read. I don't know how, I don't know yeah. if there's skid marks. I don't know how they know that, but she passed away. So yeah. you're thinking she's driving a, I think she's driving like a, you know, a Ford F-150, like 1500, or it was a, it was a, you know, 20, and he had similar size vehicles. So two huge cars colliding and Gabe, I don't know about you, but when I'm on like a, you know, a frontage road or something like that. And like, just down here, I'm like, you know, all it takes is somebody to be on their phone or someone to have like some kind of spasm and they go over that mid double yellow line and you're dead, you know, and that's what a horrible way to go. And uh, it was horrible. 
Um, you know, like, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of uh, GoFundMes, but uh, this one was something that obviously when someone dies of like a tragic, you know, if, if you get call if, if you get cancer out of nowhere or you get, you know, like Jason Strife, we saw what happened with yeah. him or or something like this with Jay Briscoe. It's like totally makes sense. I mean, this came out of nowhere. He has young children. Yeah. He, there's videos popping up of him, like, you know, dancing around with his, his daughters, yeah. like sort of practicing yeah. their dance moves with them. And like one of them had, I don't know. One of them had to have surgery. I don't know how horrific that was for her. Uh, it sounds like she's going to be okay. It sounds like she gained, uh, you know, her feeling movement. back in her legs, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that's, that's good, but they don't have a dad. And uh, yeah. it's horrible. You know? And what and what kind of, I mean, by the way, for all you fans out there, if you haven't listened to that first hour of the Jim Cornette podcast where he talks about it, I haven't heard him that distraught since the beautiful, uh, since beautiful Bobby Eaton passed away. I was actually surprised. Yeah, uh, not, me too. I mean, he not, was crying. Not be- yeah, not because I didn't think he didn't like Jay Briscoe, but I was just surprised that he had such a, you know, dramatic response to it. I mean, I mean, it is tragic. I think when you, you know, I think I'm guilty of this and I'm 45. I mean, I think if once he he's 60 now, I think, you know, as you get older, you just sit there and appreciate life more and it becomes yeah. more of a, you know, a a tug of the heartstrings than it would have been if you were 30, you know. So, I get that aspect of it, but man, he was really distraught. And 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 uh, what was really great about it though is he brought out how beloved the Briscoes are in their town or the pews are, that's their real last name mm-hmm. um, in that town. Like businesses shut down the school shut down. Cause he like, I mean, th- this was an impact felt in their hometown, but it was really cool to kind of see the love um, and support from the wrestling community as a whole. And they raised a ton of money. They're for... at a quarter million dollars already. Yeah. I saw. Yeah. yeah insane amounts of money but i mean it's gonna obviously hospital i mean wrestlers notoriously don't have insurance they did have day jobs you know that kind of stuff but highly regarded as a family man um you know that was loved his children i mean there i i i've never read outside of Brody lee which i've never read so many like an outpouring of such support for somebody in the wrestling business that has passed away recently um, outside of uh, Jay Briscoe. Now I do want to say, I think it is really crappy that they weren't allowed to be on TV because literally he tweeted that in 2016 or something really long time ago, long time ago and has apologized for it numerous times, numerous times, like ad nauseum, just like, all right, man, like I get it. Like I said, some stupid stuff. Shouldn't have done it. Sorry about that. But yet they'll have, like Jim Cornette pointed out, they'll have, you know, Dana White, Nick who, Gage. Slapped, who slapped his wife, like, you know, have his show on. No big deal. They'll have Nick Gage on. Uh, yeah. They'll have Nick Gage on. No problem. Like, yeah. You know, I'm not a Nick Gage, like basher or anything, but I mean, you're talking about a, a convicted felon and, right. and then a guy that said some some stupid uh, quasi hate words online. Now, you look, um Look, man, the the whole hypocrisy of what is considered okay and not okay on right. what people say in today's world is something we could talk about for days. Ever. So, <laughs> you know, it's just like, like I'm sure he, like, you know, I, I you know, I don't even want to go down this road. Really, I'm. It just sort of upset. It makes me upset when, um, you know, something like that is oh is horrible that he says, but then someone can say something really horrible about his religion or what he believes in, you know, something like that. And all of a sudden his is completely meaningless. So um, did I, do I think 
that Jay Briscoe, uh, yeah, truly was sorry that he did that. He seemed to be. I mean, like, I don't know what else you can really do years later. Uh, yeah. What, to make what, up what else? That. I mean, there. What? What can you do when you say something stupid? All you can do is. But see, it just goes to show you in this day and age that sometimes there is just no redemption. No matter how hard you try, no matter how sorry you are, no matter how much money you could have paid out or lost. I mean, they lost money because mm-hmm. of this. It's not good enough. There is no redemption for that. You you can't literally like say you're sorry and be like, hey, man, I screwed up because people are like, no, 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 it's not good enough. It's like, how far is far enough for you to like feel like he suffered enough, you know? And then, but I am glad I am going to tune into dynamite tonight. Cause we're recording this on a Wednesday. I'm going to tune in tonight because I do want to see Mark Briscoe. Um, it is, it is actually Jay Briscoe's birthday today. So him and Jay lethal wow. are going to go one-on-one, but I guess the outpouring was so big or I don't know, Warner brothers had to change a heart, but it sucks that it takes Jay Briscoe dying before they can get national TV exposure. That's all I'm saying. It is hypocritical. The ones that won't forgive are the ones that are always asking others to forgive. It's it's just how it is, you know? And uh, so, but I think, uh, like you said, I don't think, I think a lot of people consider the Briscoe brothers, the, the greatest unsigned tag team to obviously I'm talking WWE at this point. Uh, They were sort of had obviously an affiliation with AEW after the, the purchase of ring of honor, but they were the, they lived the gimmick. I guess they were the gimmick to a degree, but they obviously played it up for TV, but uh, self-trained, you know, listening to Cornette talk about him was fascinating about how they, you know, they drove the family camper up there and dad, their father and all these people get involved in storylines and it's like a real family affair, but then they just go back to work on the chicken farm. I mean, you know, I always love the salt of the earth people like that. They still can go back and do that and they're not too big for where they came from. And that's, that was really awesome. And Horrific tragedy, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing what Mark Briscoe does in the future here in, in the name of his brother. Yeah, yeah, I guess um, because they are very devout Christians, the family friend that's been kind of updating everybody says Mark Briscoe's in great spirits because he believes in the Lord and he believes that, you know, one day him and his brother will be reunited in heaven. And he says he wants to use his death as a way to preach to people to try to get them into the kingdom. So maybe we might have a future uh, pastor on our hands or something like that, you know, with the, yeah, we'll see with a uh, old Mark Briscoe, but definitely I don't think his time in the ring is done. Um, obviously it's not, he's wrestling Jay Letha, which should be a hell of a match tonight. Oh, so yeah. I'm really, I'm really, uh, really looking forward to that, uh, that whole thing. So, yeah, I just wanted to kind of, you know, touch base on, on Jay Briscoe and, you know, pay our respects. You know, I've, I've seen countless matches with him in ROH that I thoroughly enjoyed. I really like, I love their promos. There's this great promo online of uh, Matt Hardy when, you know, they were supposed to, um, when the Briscoes were supposed to go against the Hardy boys when they were doing their Uh indie run or whatever. And, you know, Matt does some stupid promo or whatever. And then Jay Briscoe does a promo where he cranks up his, uh, his uh, weed whacker because they have a they had a landscaping business too. And he does this like perfect, because I guess the promo was like, uh, Matt Hardy was weed whacking and making fun of him or whatever. So he starts up his weed whacker and does this like perfect edging of this. Like thing. I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> Super funny. So, but their promos like all this year, all last year and, and for a long time have just been so real and raw and good. And yeah, lots of cursing, but it just seemed like they were just, they were who they were. 
and it just it just translated really well onto the screen so yeah I, look they're different and it makes them yeah. in today's world just have that difference of the gimmicks is just you know like uh, you know <laughs> So many people get caught up with uh, the T.L. Hopper, Duke the Dumpster Drossy era and how yeah. stupid these are, whatever. But I get sick of the everyone's uh, shaved head, tatted up and tough. I just get sick of that. You know, I mean, MJF, whether you like him or hate him, he's another guy at least plays a character in wrestling. Uh, and even if you don't like him, you have to respect the fact that he's different. And the Briscoes were like that, too. I mean, they were just nobody else like them. And that's, you know, that's what I miss about 1980s wrestling is no matter how goofy the gimmick, at least you could tell the difference between all of them in some form or fashion. Totally. You know, like I like everyone, everyone buries like Vince loves the hillbillies and all this stuff. You know, he'd always have a hillbilly tag team and all yeah. this. Stuff. At least they had a gimmick. Uh, I knew they were the hillbillies. I knew what their gimmick was. I knew what they were going to try to do. Uh, I I don't know like you know it's always good if the people in the gimmick sort of you know are like that and that's what made the briscoes good because they knew how to act like the gimmick um and that's I mean, why you, always... uh, and that's a great point when you look at like the the landscape of pro wrestling right now especially on the indies it's like jay jay uh i don't know jay smith you know the the, the impact jay smith and it's like what like it's and there's UFC, nothing special man. about him other than they put that the little moniker at the beginning and it's sure. it, there's nobody that puts time and effort into like this presentation and like what are we get? i mean love him or hate him at least Danhausen did that you know what i mean there's but a at whole, least he has a gimmick yeah right so there's a whole mythos that he created around him he's never out of his makeup he's always doing the Danhausen thing i mean warhorse jake parnell is someone that you know we're going to talk about in uh nwl episodes who worked for us but at least he's got something, you know, trying something different makes them, yeah. you know, somebody on that's why Dan Housen and Warhorse have gotten opportunities on AEW in the past yeah. because they they've actually been different. But um, yeah, the that's the the I, when I was there in the early 2000s, the influence of UFC, that was one of the worst ones is that everyone in the UFC, as you can tell now, uh, they all look basically the same. They're just like right. shredded, tatted up, shaved heads. No charisma, really. Every once in a while, you'll get someone that has it. You know, I've had some really hardcore UFC friends of mine that once Brock Lesnar was there and he cut that like heel promo after he won, I was yeah, going to go back yeah. and bang his wife and drink Coors Light. Uh, that was like, you know, they hated that because they thought it was stupid, corny wrestling stuff. And I'm like, well, guess what? Like more people cared about that than anyone cares about most of these things. Like even though CM Punk is getting big ratings, even though uh, we know what happened with him and in, in UFC, but it doesn't matter. He brought, you know, he was just there to promote a couple matches and he got good buy rates off it because he's not yeah. boring. And like people aren't bored of And UFC to me as an outsider who does not watch it. Every pay-per-view that I see with these guys are all the same. They all look the same. They all they're interchangeable parts. And that's what wrestling became or has become for a long time. And, um, you know, I look, I, I know, again, too corny for some the old school stuff. Sure. But that's what I liked about wrestling, especially when I was a child. I don't know, as we've discussed multiple times. You become a wrestling fan when you're a child. If you're a wrestling fan starting off when you're 25, something's wrong. It's just weird. Like, that's not for you. Like, you're supposed to like it as a kid and then grow up and like it when you're older, not like join as a wrestling fan when you're 30 and try to get into it that way. That's just, I, I don't know. That's not the way I see things. Yeah, definitely. But speaking of UFC, the, the most entertaining UFC stuff has always been John Jones, Daniel Cormier, because they hate each other and they would cut these mean ass promos on each sure. other. You know, the, uh, Chris Weidman, 
who is like this like Trump loving, you, you know, there there's a little uh, these guys are borrowing gimmicky type stuff because everyone's like, oh, Chris well, Weidman, he's actually a really nice guy and in sure. real life. So they know that being controversial, having an opinion and being super outspoken about it, it's going to sell tickets. And you're who gonna- are the ones that who are the ones that made mainstream? I mean, I knew who Kimbo Slice was. You think I ever watched yeah. any of the other crap besides Kimbo Slice? I right. mean, Tank Abbott, he's a that that's the early days UFC where you could look like a you know like a guy that's yeah. drank like a keg of beer but then walked in and could beat the crap out of somebody that's my that's the ufc i liked i like oh, i yeah. just saw a clip earlier today when it's from like when i think it's the first ufc pay-per-view ever where it's the 600 pound like sumo wrestler and oh, he gets the little karate guy oh my gosh like that that to me is just fascinating to watch way better than like oh. two guys that hold each other in the guard for 30 minutes but that's you know beside the point dude that was i i'll never forget that i was a young kid when i first saw ufc like one two and three and i was like i was like this is so raw like just like watching that guy i mean the he got his teeth punted out of his face by yeah, i think i think it was keith hackney that did that um and sidebar to that one, uh, did you know that that guy's some of the the fragments of his tooth got lodged in that guy's shin? Oh my god, no! Yeah, yeah, wow. he had to. He got a bad infection, had to have surgery because <laughs> that guy's teeth were lodged in his uh, shin bone. That's when it was still illegal in like half the states. That's when the yeah. UFC. That's yeah. when UFC was so good. But speaking of uh, the, the UFC, did you watch? Did you see Power Slap or clips? Saw clips. The- I've seen those slapping competition clips before, but I haven't seen Power Slap, but I saw like one clip and wow. Brutal, dude. Brutal. Uh, you know, like um we talk about it on a radio show in Kansas City every once in a while, and they have them down at the Lake of the Ozarks where they will have these regional ones. And, you know, they gimmick it up and it makes it fun. And you hear all the guys talking about it going into it. But after watching, like, I don't know, a three minute highlight reel of the first power slap shot, uh, you know, and seeing Dana White on that sidelines, like reacting to the big slaps or whatever. It was like, uh, and I'm not easily offended by anything, but it was so cringy that I, uh, I, I hated watching it. I couldn't watch yeah. it. Like these guys, I saw Chris Nowinski, you know, tweeted out stuff, and you know, just you know, Chris Nowinski is obviously has a job, so he's going to talk that you know it's partially uh, job related to talk about CTE and like how this is all like going to cause it or whatever. But I agreed with him on this is that it looks brutal. It's, I don't know who would really be a fan of that, of seeing two men just utterly right. destroy their faces and then fall down and do the, you know, what do they call it? The, the, the Tua Tagovailoa like thing where you have your hands up in the air and you're like, you're, you're involuntarily sticking your hands up in the air with yeah, your Yeah. 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 Get the name of it. But anyway, I that was, uh, it was, it was just brutal. I, yeah, I don't think I, this I saw last. one where this guy got slapped so hard his head immediately swelled up. Oh yeah, it was huge. It, like and he was like Ugh! he was like pointing at it. I was like, dude, that's awful. Like I, I think he was saying the guy hit him too high on the head, but you couldn't tell because half his face looked like the elephant man and the yeah. other half was normal. It was yeah, weird. And I was looking, just man. like I, I don't know. Like he I, won the I, whole I, thing though. Did you see that? He won the whole tournament, that guy. Did he really? <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah, I, I I don't know. But as I as you were saying earlier though, as I get older, my tolerance, like even for deathmatch wrestling, I'm like, I'm like, this is not oh this is not good. Like, who wants to watch this? Like Oh, like, I, like a long time. I, and I was really never into deathmatch wrestling, but I remember when it like started escalating in the late 2000s, I think, where like, sure. uh, like gusset plates and skewers and like 
these extreme bloodletting like things yeah. and i'm it just uh i don't i don't i don't have the stomach for that shit I, the only thing i can really watch is uh new jack throwing vic grimes off the uh every day that, i can watch that for every some day. reason that doesn't bother me but every day I, oh, I i actually my friend uh sent me a clip the other day of the czw uh, czw match where and he's not a wrestling fan at all but he just found it on the internet and he's like hey look at this and it was where they were throwing chairs into the ring or whatever and yeah. i was like oh bro this is the original incident send him the ecw <laughs> one and then i was like oh you want to see something really crazy send him the bit grimes one and he immediately responded to me and he goes that is one of the worst things i've ever seen yeah like, well it's even worse when you hear new jack talk about it years later how he's like i was trying to kill them you know and i'm like well um you almost did but you know. yeah and i sent him the link of new jack talking about that to give him backstory and he's like and then and then as the icing on the cake i sent him new jack beating gypsy joe with a baseball bat yeah that's 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 hard to watch that is like because that's like a he's beating up an elderly man. And, uh, you know, we, the New Jack Dark Side of the Ring is a fascinating show in many ways. And uh, now that he passed away, it's even more fascinating. But, um, yeah, Did they say yeah. how he passed away. It was like a heart attack, right? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like a overdose or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. But um, the best yeah. story on that is that the end in Florida when the, he was actually in jail and he could have stayed there for a long time, but the guy could let him out because he, he worked the other wrestler into thinking, yeah, we'll take this all around the United States. Just bail me out and I can do that. Never went back to Florida guy bailed on the dude. And I'm like, Oh, you had him dead to right, man. And uh, you let him out. So there you go. Then he went and had a uh, weird tryst with Terry Runnels and. <laughs> oh the my God. That was so <laughs> dude. You, we could go down that rabbit hole. That was so weird. Oh my God. And then his like shoot interviews with Balls Mahoney. Mm-hmm. Wow. Anyways, good. all right, Chris. Well, we've uh, rambled on enough about the uh, latest and greatest headlines in the world of wrestling. Um, but right now, we're gonna get to that interview with Matt Murphy. Uh, what was his moniker again? Say his moniker again. Uh, he started as uh, Matt the Missile Murphy, and then okay. when he came to W, when he came when he's in Metro Pro, he was uh, at first all that Matt Murphy. So, uh, but he was a great, great, he's actually a very good friend of mine. Um, very smart guy. He actually applied. We talk about it. He applied to be a writer at the WWE after I was there and he got a rejection letter, which he framed to put on his wall. (laughs) And I told him he would be very much, uh, he would have the same outcome that I did because he's pretty outspoken and blunt. And, uh, I don't think he would have lasted very long based on the fact that when Stephanie was there and I, I, um, I, (sighs) I don't like like Conrad Thompson. I heard my, my buddy sent me a link and he was just like, just going on and on about Stephanie McMahon on his show the other day. And um, I dare say that Conrad Thompson has no idea what he's talking about. Um, and maybe he's talking about Stephanie McMahon, the person that is the ambassador now that is, but I, but we worked with Stephanie and she is not, uh, she wasn't like a, uh, a loving person. <laughs> so um you know, I, I don't know. I just, I, I can't stand when people uh, sort of put that out there that that's actually the way it was. But uh, I said, Matt Murphy, you would not have enjoyed being around Stephanie because she did not enjoy uh, anyone else's opinions, and uh, neither yeah. did Triple H when he was uh, lingering in the background of those conference calls. But anyway, <laughs> um, background. <laughs> but Matt Murphy is here. He is. <laughs> yeah, let's get to that interview with Matt Murphy, and we'll see you on the other side. 
Joined now by all that Mad Murphy, a guy that I have known for, I don't know, over a decade now. I've known you for quite a while. And uh, it, Matt, when I first met you, you were coming to, I guess it was Metro Pro Wrestling is the very first time I met you, but uh, we got to be pretty good friends and I've known you ever since. But uh, I, I appreciate now that you're in Florida that taking the time to you know, mess with us Midwest folk. Yeah, man, I appreciate you having me enjoying the podcast so far. Yeah, well, let, let's talk about Central States because um, anyone that knows uh, about your past, I mean, you're you're, an, you're a published author multiple times. Uh, everyone really enjoys your books. You always have you've written a couple of really good books. But uh, you were the first graduate of the Harley Race Academy. Now we've had Dan Geyer on here, and we he's told us some good Harley Race stories because, as you know, he's been around him for decades. But um, mm-hmm. before you went to Harley, before all that, when you were growing up in Iowa. Um, what did you think about this Central States wrestling territory? Did you watch any of it? Did you were you even old enough to have a connection to any of the Bob Geigel era stuff? Yeah, I, I saw. I think some of the Central States shows in the uh, kind of the later days. I remember, like at the time, it was. Um, I think Mike George was still around before he went up for his run in AWA. Sure, and, uh, the Batten Twins. I, nobody really talks about them anymore. They don't. I know. I think they were the uh, maybe the top tag team at the time and uh sd jones or i'm sorry rufus r jones rufus and uh and bob brown were still were still around uh working the territory and i and then i i heard stories all the time um you know even my mom like she wasn't a wrestling fan but uh one of the names that gets lost that she was a big fan of when she was a kid was uh danny little bear sure and um yeah so i i had heard a lot about it i i read about about the territory in the magazines but um you know, a lot of times back then, when you're when you're, you know, you have have your brother standing holding a piece of tin foil on the antenna, trying to trying to get just enough just enough reception to be able to watch a little bit of something. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't always easy to try to catch whatever was on TV at the time. Did they do any traveling shows around you in those dying days? So I call the dying days of Central States anywhere from about you know since about WrestleMania one, so eighty five, eighty six ish to you know eventually nineteen ninety, early ninety one is when it completely folded shop. But did you get to go to any like house shows at all? Did you ever travel to Kansas City to be able to go to like Memorial Hall at all, or, did, or was that something that was completely out of your your uh, your life at that point? Yeah, it was. I, I mean. To, to travel to any kind of a show like that wasn't really – it really didn't fit my lifestyle at the time, you know, uh, financially. So um, the, the first show I ever went to was actually in uh, Muscatine, Iowa. It, funny enough, I, I ended up wrestling at this high school um, my first and second year, I think, in the business. But um, it, it was a little indie show that I think it had <clears throat> a total of uh, five or six guys total. And they did like a couple singles and then a tag and closed it out with the Battle Royal. But um, – but yeah, they the central states. Uh, I I know they came around the territory. It's just most of the time, if they did, it was something that I would have heard about after the fact. Uh, well, that's got to take you back to when you were wrestling with Harley, because I've seen some Harley shows where that's exactly how the show went. <laughs> it was oh, yeah. single, single tag battle royal. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I was yeah, I was I was always one of the guys that was doing that. It was usually. Usually, uh, me and Steve Fender as, as heels, and then some combination of Trevor Murdoch, Wade Chisholm, and Bull Schmidt as the baby faces. So <laughs> that's funny. So uh, yeah. So talking about going back to Central States before we move on to your career, um, what did you when you started getting into the business and you were talking with other, you were traveling around doing some indies. Like, what did people think about? 
you know, Kansas City, or you're from Iowa, so I, I can lump you in with like Kansas City because it's it's in the same you know, general area of flyover country for most people on the coast. So if you got to see anybody else around, not from around here, I'm sure they thought you were just some, you know, backwards hillbilly. That's, that's how I felt when I went up to Connecticut to work there. So, uh, is is that what everyone thought of at that point? You know, it's funny because it wasn't really until I got out of the business that I really heard a lot of negative stuff about the Kansas city territory, just as far as the paydays and, you know, the brutal road trips and stuff like that. Um, I mean, I, most of what I heard was from fans and I mean, everybody just had such fond memories of it. And, you know, I think a lot of the people that aren't from the Midwest or, or, or even from rural Missouri, Kansas, Iowa, um, might not understand just how perfect that territory was for the market. It was. And, 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 you know, I talked with Dan about that too. I mean, regardless of how, you know, obviously we call this the worst territory in the world, as you know, because it's, uh, that's what Ric Flair and Jim Cornette, they, they always just dump all over it because of course, mm-hmm. of course, you know, compared to the biggest territories that they would face, Kansas City's obviously on the lower end of it. Uh, you know, they've talked about Kansas City at one point was looked at as if Crockett was going to try to take over uh, what Vince hadn't taken already. They wanted Kansas City to be a developmental territory, and that would have been perfect for for this area. But like you said, it was a blue collar roster ran by blue collar guys like Bob Geigel and and mm-hmm. Harley Race, even to that degree. And uh, yeah, it, it, did, it did match. And everyone that went to the shows and that still talks about it, obviously they're from here and they're homers, but they loved it and they still revered. Yeah. It's so much. It's it's just so different. I mean, it depending on the territory you're in. Um, you know, some some want the razzle dazzle and some want just, you know, good hard hitting matches. And um I, I think with Kansas City, I mean, even when I was working, you know, you can go to a do a show, you know, somewhere north of St. Joe or, you know, south of Kansas City, go into these little towns of, you know, four and five thousand people and you pop the crowd with a headlock takeover. And it's like you know, once once you realize that you can, I, I guess, get the reaction you're looking for out of the crowd uh-huh. with, with the absolute bare bones basics, there was no point in, you know, like the central states territory. They they gave the crowd what they needed. They didn't give the crowd. They they didn't try to. They didn't try to be anything they weren't. It was just straightforward. You know, wrestling entertainment. Yeah, and you know, of course. Um... You, you know my background. I, I know your background. I want to talk about that more. But just going, uh, you know, I never really understood how small time Kansas City was looked at. Obviously, growing around here and uh, growing up and, and being here, it didn't seem that way when you were a child. But when you go somewhere else in America, um, that you do realize how far down the totem pole you really are in other people's minds. But um, when you decide to uh, become a professional wrestler, um, I assume because you're from the the general area here that Harley Race was the number one reason you did that, and just based on everything that he did, is that is that how it happened? And I, so I actually started training a little bit uh, while I was in the Navy. I started training in uh, Virginia, and I had three training sessions and three matches while I was out there. Um, came back to Missouri and really didn't know where I was going to go from there. And uh, Dave Marquez had just started World Legion Wrestling. And I uh, kind of talked my way into being ringside, taking pictures for that, just to, you know, try to try to be around it and kind of get my foot in the door. And I was able to get in the ring a little bit ahead of uh, ahead of the show. And Harley was there, and he, he actually told me to drop kick a radio DJ in the face. <laughs> um, and as I, the guy said, the guy said that he had been a worker in the past, and Harley kind of doubted it. And 
Uh, so he wanted me to throw a stiff drop kick in his face. And so we were going through and doing this little bad match and I, I didn't do it. And Harley came up and kind of let me have it a little bit for, you know, not doing what he told me. And I said, he didn't do anything wrong to me. I don't know why I would kick him in the face. And, um, so after that, his school opened up and Derek Stone and, uh, and Grizz were running it. And I went down, it was a boxing, it was a boxing gym in Springfield, Missouri, started training down there. And I think I was down there two months before I even met Harley. I met Harley like a week before our first show. So his, so I know it moved several times. So Harley's technical, his very first gym was, was in Springfield and that's basically yeah. because of WLW. Cause take me through that because I know a lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of people that are insiders know who David Marquez is. He has ran championship wrestling from Hollywood and several mm-hmm. incarnations of that for decades now. So he's, he's a known uh, promoter in the United States, but what was world Legion wrestling like? Because it was sort of a, in the grand scheme of things, uh, a short run for that incarnation of it but it was a huge splash at the beginning correct yeah oh the show i went to was incredible it was it was by far their best show uh the best produced show the best crowd really good good sized crowd they had uh sid vicious was just i think he was coming off a run as a psycho sid in wwf not long before that so he was still he was still hot you know looked at as a kind of a main event talent sure and it was right before he went back to wcw um, but Sid was there. It was, it, it looked like a major television production. Um, you know, Dave, Dave's a guy who can open doors and make things happen. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I remember my first week training down at the school and he was in talks with WGN to have a weekly TV show, you know? So it, it looked like, it looked like the company that I was getting my foot in the door with was sure. going to go national. Yeah, you know, Dave is uh, such a he's such a West Coaster in my mind. It's always interesting, and you know, he's he's done other incarnations of championship wrestling that he's still running today. You know, in Tennessee and mm-hmm. other places, or Memphis rather. But um, but like, I always wondered why did he did he feel like what was the reason they picked this play? Why did he pick World Legion Wrestling to be in Kansas City or in Missouri? Was that because of Harley? Was did he think it was just uh, was he trying to play off the pass? Did you ever really understand why he chose this? I, I think Carl Lauer had a big thing to do with okay, it. I Carl think he Lauer. had a big part in it. I, in fact, I think Carl had the promoter's license, if I remember right. So I think they kind of piggybacked off of his promoter's license. Okay, yeah, Carl Lauer, longtime Missouri resident, was at Cauliflower Alley Club. These are names that some people might not know who they are. But um, in the area, a lot of people knew who Carl Lauer was. Okay, yeah. well, it was just, it was, uh, I mean, I hear these stories about, you know, and Dave, Dave does not, you know, go skimpy when he does television production. Um, right. You know, I'm always jealous because I'm always pinching pennies, and he is always having, like, lighting grids and, uh, you know, cameras everywhere. So uh, <laughs> it, it always looked great. So I've heard those early shows uh, were, you know, awesome, just the roster and, and like you said, production-wise. But how did... How did that from your advantage from your vantage point, how did that end? Like what what happened? Like what was it take me through like, okay, oh my gosh, uh here's Sid and all these huge names and I'm getting my f- feet wet right now. This is a great place to be. I did never knew it was gonna happen in Missouri, but here I am. Yeah. And like so how did it go from uh where you started until what it ended up now moving to Kansas City for a while, right? Yeah. Um so it went from uh it, it was down in Springfield and when I moved down there um, the studio or not studio that their offices were just closing up. There was, I, apparently there was a business partner that embe- embezzled a bunch of money. And, um, <laughs> so 
the whole operation moved to a two-bedroom apartment, or I mean, I'm sorry, a two-bedroom house right next to Georgia Steakhouse in Springfield. And um, the I guess what was supposed to be the dining room was the production studio. Uh, the living room is where three of us slept. There were a total of seven of us that lived in the house. Seven people, seven dogs, if I remember right, and and a TV production studio. Wow. Uh, in in the dining room, and um, so I I I jumped on board when things when it was a big deal, and then when I got there, it was right after kind of the bottom dropped out. And um, but Dave, I mean, you know, to his credit, he he kept rolling. Um, you know, he separated from the guy that that was thought to have embezzled money. Sure. And he was, like I said, my first week there, they were talking about getting on WGN, uh, you know, having a national TV program. Well, Matt, you talk about this huge show in World Legion Wrestling, but how did it come to be World League Wrestling, and when did it eventually leave Springfield? Like, how long was it actually down in Springfield before it moved to mid-Missouri? I don't know how long it took them to kind of set the company up, but it was in Springfield, I think, less than a year. Um, I The show I went to was in, I think, April of 99, and then I moved down there in July of 99, and by September of that year, uh, the operation moved up to Eldon, which is in Lake of the Ozarks, mid-Missouri. Uh-huh. And so at that point, is Marquez gone, or is it, is it just Harley? Like, who who is sort of running things at this point? So when it was in Springfield, it was Marquez. And then I think Marquez kind of got maneuvered out of the company once uh, the operation moved up to Eldon and it became World League Wrestling. Yeah. Well, I, 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 would, I was always curious if Marquez actually wanted to <laughs> is he the kind of guy that wants to go to Eldon? You know, I, I don't know. He's he likes to stay around metropolis areas. Not that Springfield is huge, but <laughs> it's bigger than Eldon. So I didn't, yeah. yeah, I didn't know how, but I always wondered watching it from afar, you know, what was going on because, you know, at that time, obviously, as you know, when you broke into the business in the late nineties, early two thousands, Matt, I mean, you could, some guy could put a sign that says wrestling show tonight and you draw a thousand people. It was just so hot. Right. I mean, it was yeah. crazy. Oh yeah. Most definitely. Even in these small towns. I mean, once we started world legion or world league wrestling, um, you know, we, I mean, not every show was a home run, but I mean, we had a lot of really solid crowds and I mean, everybody was, everybody was watching wrestling. Yeah. I think people forget just how hot it is because it's been 20, you know, 20 plus years since this is really the era that we're talking about here. But I mean, you know, I, I would talk to, to Michael Strider about, he was greener than grass and he was main eventing shows at the St. Joe civic center which holds, you know, you know, I don't know, a couple thousand or whatever it is, but they were drawing like over a thousand people <laughs> for mm-hmm. for someone that no one heard of, but it was because, you know, obviously the the Monday Night Wars and everything was so hot. So, you know, it's it fast forward 10 years later, it was a lot, it's a lot different scenario as you know, but oh, uh, yeah. but man, I it would have been a, I think I think when you got into indie wrestling and started working for Harley here in the Central States area, I think you got, uh, I don't know, you're probably like me when I went to go work for WWF and you're like, is this how it always is going to be? I'm going to be riding in jets and limos with Vince? And you're like walking into these halls and you're like, oh man, I'm, you know, I don't know who is your main event, but you're, you're on the card and you're drawing so many people. And I don't know if you can really get the full perspective when that's how you start, right? Yeah. When, so when I started... Um, I was making a hundred bucks a show 
And that was, I mean, for my very first show with for, World League Wrestling. For 99-2000, that's freaking awesome. I mean, it is. Yeah, yeah. there were so many indie guys at the time, too, that, you know, there were guys that would have worked, that would have paid to work. Um, so, you know, I think the kind of the going rate in the indies at the time was probably, you know, if you got paid at all, maybe 25 bucks. Sure. Um, so, you know, I not not only did I get paid well by Harley, but then he also didn't let us go work for peanuts anywhere else so i was getting usually a minimum of 100 bucks to go work a show anywhere else too see that's I, that's an interesting thing because see when i was when i started metro pro in 2010 harley was sort of he was getting sort of out of it like he, he didn't have that kind of leash on his workers to sort of as an agent or whatever you know he he wasn't calling yeah. the shots with me he wasn't calling me up and saying like you need to pay whoever you know whatever amount of money uh mm-hmm. i guess is it was that just at the beginning of your career when did that how long did that no happen? that was that was the my entire career and it wasn't always a good thing sometimes it was sometimes it was i would end up at some you know trash promotion and um I just, you know, get my hundred bucks or whatever and get out of there, like, you know, work my match and get out of there. Uh, so sometimes it, it was nice, but then there were other times I lost out on opportunities because of at, at the time I, at the time I looked at it as his interference in my bookings sure. because I, I wanted to go work elsewhere. There are a lot of these guys that thought that we were stuck up us Harley guys, uh, the guys in the St. Louis and Kansas city promotions. I wanted to go work there and I asked to go work there and I was told no. Um, I, I would have gone and worked for nothing. You know, I just wanted to get ring time. I wanted to get better. And I was being told that, you know, I was, I, I was in a different league than them and I should be paid accordingly, which wasn't, wasn't, you know, necessarily true. It's just, uh, I kind of understand, you know, he was, he was trying to look out for me and also trying to kind of keep his, his hold on his ability to run shows wherever he wanted. Sure. I mean, I get both sides to that. Uh, I understand that as a worker, especially when you're you're as young as you were at the time, you want to get out there and and, uh, get experience in different companies and just sort of, you know, have not the same uh, roster around you the entire time. And and I understand Harley, you know, again, at that time, late 90s, early 2000s, he's trying to make his mark as – with his name recognition, obviously, uh, you know, as a premier place to be. So you don't want um, your guys going and working at, you know, places that some of these, you know, some of these horrible indies that still exist today. Uh, you don't want them going there and working for a, a handshake. So I, I get it. Um, I do think, you know, it's funny you said that because I do think that some of the Harley guys through the years did have that kind of uh, uh, stink on them for being, uh, you know, they think they're better than us. They'll only work their shows, stuff like that. I heard that as when I was promoting or whatever, and I, I never really got that from anybody from Harley's, but definitely other people sort of threw shade on you that way. Yeah, most definitely. And uh, I one one of the things it wasn't just it wasn't just the the actual ring time uh, that I wanted. I I wanted a chance to broaden my horizons, like. I had a chance to grab the mic once in a while and, you know, cut a little promo, but I, I wanted a chance to actually like run some programs and, um, in areas where people were familiar. Like I, I always wanted to work for a promotion like what be like what Metro pro became where everybody, like I knew every time I would go to that town, everybody was already up to speed on what was happening. Sure. You know, a lot of times like Trevor Murdoch and I had this long feud and we're going to all these towns. We're doing a Texas death match in a town we've never been to they have no clue who we are or why we don't like each other or there's just, there's nothing to it. But I felt like 
work in some of these other promotions, especially the ones that ran consistent towns, um, I felt like that would be an opportunity to really uh, tell some stories and, and also have the audience invested beyond what they were seeing just right then and there. No, I know. Sure. I know he was, uh, his motto was shut up and wrestle and that, you know, <clears throat> Harley was always, he could cut a good promo, uh, when he had to, but he was always obviously the toughest guy in the room and always, uh, was big on, you know, having high caliber matches. Um, but is, is that something that, uh, you know, did you not have like a home base in Eldon? And I know he wasn't, you know, I know he wasn't exactly Mr. Storyline guy, um, and mm. that's fine. But uh, did he did did he not allow? You know, because you say basing it out of a out of a town. Of course, if you had your home in Eldon, was that not even doable at that point? Um, not really. I honestly like there were there were a couple of us. I I'd say that I was probably the most vocal. Yeah. Uh, that kind of tried to um, put a little bit of creative spark in what we were doing yeah as far as as far as storylines and stuff like that i i felt like we were working for we were working for the town that right then and there and that was it um we were it felt like we were doing just spot shows even when we come to eldon every you know three to four months um we didn't have a whole lot we didn't even have a whole lot carrying over from the previous eldon show that would uh draw people and and the thing that sucked about that was I mean, back then, message boards were a big deal. Sure. And I I wanted fans talking about what we had going on and, the, you know, the few storylines that we had going. But it was like even reading our, our WLW message board, it was always, well, what big name are you bringing in for this show? There was no investment whatsoever in what we were doing. Like our, our core group, there just wasn't a whole lot of interest in what we were doing. I'm surprised. Because we were just doing one show to the next. I'm surprised you weren't running – at least monthly in Eldon. I maybe maybe didn't think you had the 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 base there. You were just too too busy doing too many other towns. I mean, why wasn't that more of a regular spot? I think he just didn't want to he didn't want to give them more than he I he, I don't think he thought it was sustainable. Oversaturation. Um, yeah, I mean, I my my plea to him was let's do a $5 just $5 first come first serve seating monthly show. Let's record it. Let's run stories. Let's let's actually develop our develop our storytelling skills, and you know, like let's let's expand beyond tackle drop down hip toss. You know, let's actually start developing ourselves as people who could have sustainable careers in this business um, by having a monthly show. And you know, if you're worried that we're not going to be able to sell it out every time or whatever, do five bucks a head. Here's how many tickets we can sell after this point. Sorry, you know we're sold out, and um, I just never could quite convince him to do that. And then ultimately, they ended up being able to do that once they moved to Troy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. Like a couple of things you said there were interesting. Number one, why, one of the guests I had on here, Jay French, he came in as a younger guy in '87 in Kansas City, and one of his stories was he just thought he was gonna—he was a young whippersnapper. He was gonna come up there and uh, inject some creativity into Bob Gagel's, you know, business that was fledgling there in the late '80s. And I think yeah. he ran in probably the same sort of situation you did, which was, you know. Bob would listen to an extent, but he wasn't necessarily like gung ho about changing up the way he did things at that point in his life. And, um, yeah. you know, like hearing the stories of how he was trying to sell, you know, Kurt Hennig and DJ Peterson, these guys to Bob Geigel in 1988 was, uh, 
was sort of comical <laughs> looking back now, but at the time, I'm sure it made sense to her, you know, to Bob not to do that. But uh, something that you talked about with WLW, though, in your message board is the, about what big name you bring in this time. And that was something I was always scared as a promoter of an indie to not do too much so they wouldn't rely on it, you know, because I enjoyed, uh, as you know, like doing the TV all the time for Metro Pro. It was fun to have big names on there for multiple reasons number one i thought it was cool to put on tv number two like all the guys and the, the boys loved meeting those guys and working with them and no matter how old they were at the, you know I, I just always loved the experience and just they had been at wrestlemania or whatever and it was cool for them to be there yeah. but uh harley was the king of bringing in these huge names because he's harley race and you know i mean people were coming in just probably just for the the plane ticket just to do something with harley and um yeah. and the problem is for a guy like you um yeah, they're wondering if, if Haku and Barbarian are coming in this week. They don't care if uh, all that Matt Murphy or the Matt the Missile Murphy is going to be wrestling, uh, you know, Bull Schmidt tomorrow. Yep. <laughs> and that yeah, would be a downer I, for you. Yeah, and I, I would I would voice my concerns about that too. And I would tell them, I think we're a lot better off drawing 150 people to a show than 250 people with a name. Because sure. then people are going to, people are, they're paying to see us. And, you know, those, uh, there was, there was one show where, um, Harley called me on speakerphone and he and his wife, BJ were in the office. And I was at the time I was out of the business, I was working as a sports writer and I'd been to the show, uh, their previous show. And they asked me what I thought about it. And I said, you had a guy named Keith Walker nearly beat Wade Chisholm for your championship for your heavyweight championship. And then that guy like crawled out of the ring, turned around and got laid out in one punch by Hacksaw Jim Duggan. So that reminds everybody, oh yeah, these are guys that are just small time. And, you know, why, like how, how credible is your champion when he almost got beat by a guy who got dropped in one punch by Jim Duggan? And, um, what would his response was, be to that? He would, he would say, yeah. And then next time, <laughs> next show, same thing. <laughs> You know, and, and it was the same with him. Like, I didn't think it was a bad thing when he would come out and lay me out because I was, you know, I was a tag guy. I was a smaller guy. And, you know, he still looked like he could knock me out. <laughs> yeah. Harley, but, uh, Harley looked the same way really for like 30 years. So, I mean, yeah. or more maybe, but yeah. And, um, I, I, the, the time I finally got through to him on that was when, uh, he brought in a hockey enforcer named Tony twist. Okay. And, um, Tony did a, a match in our first PAX TV taping and it was a six man tag. And I was on the other side and Tony and I had done some promos back and forth. And, um, but I, I told Harley, I'm like, he's going to hit me with a knockout punch. That's fine. But I want Trevor to drop an elbow to pin me. I don't want a hockey player pinning me in the main event of our first TV taping. And he acted like he, he acted like, okay, kid, now you get it. But I was like, no, I've got it this whole time. And I've been trying to tell you <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I get it. You want to, you want to send the crowd home happy. They want to see, you know, Hacksaw Jim Duggan or somebody like, sure. Um, you know, they, they want, they want that big pop. They want to go home happy and I get it. But I, I think that sometimes that came at the expense of the homegrown talent. It did. And I mean, I was guilty of that as well. I mean, you know, I mean, I, it's, it's, especially when, you know, at the time I was booking them, they're, you know, 65 years old, you <laughs> know, 60 yeah. years old. So it's in their sixties. Uh, when you're dealing mm -hmm. with some of your guys you were talking about, they were still relatively, you know, high forties, fifties. I mean, they could still, you know, that's, that's, you know, there's people on WWE's talent roster at that age still now, you know? So, um, mm -hmm. but, uh, 
Yeah, you know, I, I always thought that was a catch-22. I understood, like, not having too many guys because then if you do it, then then all the fans are, are only really looking forward to the meet-and-greet with the uh, the old-timers. That are that. Believe me, I love that part, too. That's a reason why I would go to indie shows back in the day is because I saw Jimmy Superfly Snooker was going to be there. I didn't know who, you know, these two guys were wrestling. You know, Adam Pierce. I didn't know who Adam Pierce was or Matt Murphy was, you know, whatever. And mm-hmm. hopefully, as a promoter, you hope the, the old guys bring people in and they enjoy the rest of the show after the meet and greet but um but mm-hmm. yes it can be used too much like you said um so what tell, tell me about uh just your experiences with harley because obviously him being the the face of the central states region in kansas city for probably the rest of our lifetime uh what was it like uh meeting him working with him and just the legendary stories you knew going in did they did he live up to those oh yeah most definitely um it was I've, I've still never met anybody like him um, who was just absolutely fearless. Uh, so, for example, he's very famously, uh, he was heavy-footed. And, you know, he, he liked to drive fast. Oh, yeah. And, um, but he also, like, there was just no fear. So, like, I, I was going to, a, uh, to the airport with him one time. I rode with him to pick up uh, one of the Japanese wrestlers. And it was just pouring down rain. And I said, aren't you going to turn your wipers on? He said, why? It just it, like, it hadn't even crossed his mind. And then, um, he started hydroplaning and he said, don't ever hit your brakes. When you hydroplane, your tires have to touch sometime. And like, he, he was like, he, he wasn't saying it for a pop, you know, he was just like, that's how he felt. I mean, the guy, he, he most definitely did whatever he wanted. Um, and he was he was for the most part very straight shooter you know there were there were some times that you know he was also a businessman in, in pro wrestling so yeah yeah you have to lie sometimes yeah <laughs> that's just how it is unfortunately i mean you have to be uh, lies strong you have to um n- you know there's a lot of people to make happy so it's always mm-hmm. hard to do that without sort of bending the truth yeah yeah, he was. Uh, I mean, I I learned a lot from him, um, and honestly, it wasn't just like wrestling stuff. Like there, there was just there was so much like common sense stuff. Like the uh, he he wasn't a traditionally like he he's a he's a really smart guy, but it was all street smarts. Sure, you know, it was, um, I mean, he was just just so unique and had such a unique perspective on things. Um, I was actually I was watching a movie straight out of Compton. And uh, it had all these people burning NWA's um, albums, yeah, because of, because of a song that was controversial. And Easy E said, you know, something along the lines of, "Who cares what they do if, as long as they're buying the as long as they're buying the record?" And like that, it, when I saw that, it made me think of Harley because that's exactly something he would have said. <laughs> you know, it's just like um, not something you're going to learn at university. You know, it's true. Um, but he was uh, when when I started there, he was. I mean, he was still tough. He was, you know, he didn't get around like he used to. But um, you know, he had. There one kid decided to test him and try to wrestle around with him during training one night, and um, Harley made him shout and scream and cry and all kinds of things. Um, had a fan test him one night. At a, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> had a fan test him at a bar, and. Uh, he ended up there's there's a great picture a guy Scott McLenn who hosted Saturday Night Slam 
it was a uh, wrestling radio show out of Iowa. Okay. But Scott McLenn took an awesome picture of um, Harley with this guy leaned over the hood of a car and his forearm in the guy's throat. And, um, <laughs> you know, it was just, there, there weren't many times that I, I saw anything like that, but, um, he was also, he, he stood up for his guys. Um, I was sitting at a bar one night with a guy, uh, Wade Chisholm, who was many, many time WLW champion. And, um, he was also one of, one of the few African-American men in, uh, in the Eldon area. Sure. And Harley was sitting at a table. I, I was sitting at the bar next to Wade. And a guy had talked, was trying to talk to Wade's girlfriend, and he used a racial slur, and Harley caught wind of it and came over and grabbed the guy by the back of the neck, and he um, pointed in his face, and then he took his middle knuckle, and he wasn't trying to knock him out. He just took his middle knuckle and wrapped him on the chin with it, and the guy open-faced cried in the bar. I mean, blubbering, just <laughs> snot and spit and tears. It was He was blubbering. And saying how much he loved Harley and how much he liked watching him as a kid and how sorry he was and you know it was uh, he he just he didn't take crap from anybody and you know he he would most definitely stand his ground for himself and for and for his people. Would he when you got there? Was he still able to roll around the ring at any? Was he in the ring with you at all? No, not really. Okay, I was just curious. Uh, not that he had to. I, you know, I mean, Doctor Tom still does it now, and I'm sure he doesn't like doing that part. And at this point in his life, but uh, you know, I just didn't know. You know, Harley just, you know, just being there and giving you some pointers is enough, really, uh, more than you're going to get from 95 percent of the wrestling schools. Oh yeah, most definitely. Um, and he he would he didn't say a whole lot, but when he did, he made it count. You know, like I, I remember, uh, you know, the, the cane uppercut, like the open hand chopped where he would slap his shoulder and make a big pop. Yes. I started doing that a little bit. And one time I did it and man, it, it just popped perfectly. It sounded like a, it sounded like a whip cracking. And he said, Hey Matt, since wind is hitting somebody in the throat with your fingertips, make that noise <laughs> and just totally took the wind out of my sails. I never did that. I never did that again. He would hate leg slapping or he did. I'm sure. Oh yeah, and he had no love for comedy. Um, I I remember Ace Steel. <laughs> I got Ace booked with WLW, and um, he uh, came down and he tagged with Steve with Steve Fender and and with me, and we did a little Three Stooges spot. And Harley came storm into the back, and I, I immediately took responsibility for it. <laughs> and actually, Ace and I just talked about it not too long ago. He pulled Ace off to the side and said, don't ever let him talk you into anything like that again. <laughs> um, but yeah, there, there were times that he would come back and praise our matches. There were times that uh, he would come back and, you know, let us have it for, you know, something he didn't like in the match. What was uh, Harley's ultimate goal with WLW in your opinion? I mean, did he, did he want it to become a feeder system? Was he trying to, you know, was he purely working on a relationship, a pipeline to Japan and WWF? Like, what did, did you ever really know? I mean, was he just passing time because he was bored? Why, why did he do it? I, I think it started off as that. And I, I think that he just wanted to, you know, run his shows and have something to do. And, you know, um, I, we, we did most of our shows were, were fundraisers, which, you know, is, is not only a, a good deed, but also from from a perspective of promoting independent wrestling spot shows in places far away from that, that weren't, 
you know, easy driving distances from Eldon. Yeah. It, it was also a smart choice because then you had other people doing your marketing for you and, you know, taking a cut of the uh, proceeds. But, um, yeah, I, I think that he was, it started off that way. And then, um, there was one Japanese wrestler who reached out and he supposedly worked with a company and I think he was, I think he was pretty scammy, but he came down and don't really know what his purpose was. But then Noah came along not too long after that. Hmm. And, um, he like uh, I, I don't remember even the guy's name anymore, but yeah, he came down and I think he spent about 45 seconds in the ring with me and I don't think he got in the ring with anybody else the whole time, the whole time he was down. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, then once the Noah thing happened, I, I think that he started seeing the opportunity to, you know, grow his promotion and grow the school and also get, you know, people some opportunities. I mean, that was one of my dreams is to work Japan. I was going to say you and so many guys that went to WLW had the J- Japanese. They they knew that was a big obviously caveat to be going to Harley's. Not only just to meet with Harley and have be trained by one of the best ever, but to get that pipeline to Japan because it was looked at as such a obviously a unique exotic thing to be a part of. That when you went over there, and how many times did you over there? Three, three. When you went over there, um, just what's the perspective of of, of pro wrestling Noah or in Japan in general and Harley race. What, what do they think about him over there? Oh, they adored him. They, they, there was so much respect for him um, from, from the fans to um, the, the pro wrestling Noah executives to the wrestlers. I mean, it, after my first tour, I, I probably wouldn't have been brought back if not for, if not for Harley, if not for the respect for his name. Yeah, I mean, I, I would assume that's what it was going to be, but I, you know, I just wanted to hear someone that was actually on the ground there. I've always wanted to go to Japan just as a person visiting there, so um, mm-hmm. I know that you speak of reverence from there, and sort of several people that go that I've talked to that have gone over there f- through Harley. Um, you know, that was obviously something that you really enjoyed. Yeah, yeah. The so the wrestling itself. Um, I really enjoyed, I, I didn't really get a chance to, I, I don't want to say I didn't get a chance. I probably just spent too much time partying, but um, I didn't really do any sightseeing or anything like that aside from going to Rapungi and, you know, drinking a lot of beer. But um, yeah, it was, it was most definitely, it was just so different, you know, and, and the things that the crowd would, would respond to and, you know, they would sit, they would sit quietly and respectfully. And then, you know, if you could actually get a reaction out of it, it was, double rewarding because they weren't making noise just for the sake of hearing themselves yeah yeah that's funny um so uh, when you come back uh you know and you uh you further your career you're not exactly in wow anymore um i know you you wrestled for me at metro pro you wrestled other places um you had Mm -hmm. sort of resurgence there for a while i i would say in your career uh just because you did travel more at that point um, what, what was, uh, you know, how was that different? Uh, you had a different perspective once you actually got to go outside of, of WLW and sort of Harley's reign, I guess, like what, what did you learn at that point? Um, so this is, this might sound terrible, but when I, when I came back, first of all, I wasn't an athlete anymore. Um, you know, no matter how much cardio I did, I still, I, I still wasn't an athlete. Um, I, I looked like, I, I looked like a dude that was like, you know, third key at the third key at the grocery store or something. I didn't look like um, somebody who was going to win a bar fight. And, but the, the thing is I went in just wanting to have fun and try to make positive contributions. That was it. Sure. So I, I wanted nothing out of it for myself really, um, except to just enjoy myself. 
So I had way more fun when I came back in 2011. And um, if I can suck up to the host here for a minute, I had no plans on coming back. And then Metro Pro happened. And it was everything I always wanted um, as, as a wrestler. And I just really wanted to be a part of of that. And it expanded from there to where I was working other indies as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, you were obviously a, a super, you know, you were a great part uh, of just not only being a creative help, but just, uh, you know, a veteran in the locker room, obviously looked up at because you worked. I, I love your title of the, the first ever graduate of Harley Races Academy because only <laughs> one person can have that. And that was you. I mean, how what was that going back a step? Like, what was that like? I mean, getting that uh, title like what? How did that even go down? Was there only were you in the first class or were you just the first one to finish? Like, how, what, how did that distinction come about? So it was. Um, so Trevor came a week after I did. And so I was the first real new student, even though I had a few training sessions and a few matches and Trevor been wrestling two, maybe three years at that point. So he was considered in, in the advanced class and I was in the beginner and then we debuted on the same show and they just referred to me as uh, the first graduate. <laughs> uh, there was no graduation. There was just, okay, now we have shows and you're going to work. Yeah. It was a good gimmick. It was a good gimmick, but yeah. you were actually obviously uh, it seems real as well. It wasn't just fake. Um, yeah, it was, no, it was, it was one of two, one of two first graduates. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you, I don't know, when you, when you came and wrestled it, uh, in Kansas city, it was, uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun. Um, you know, it seems like it went by so fast, but you know, yeah. I forget you were there in 2011 and you were there through when you like, then you had some like sort of medical issues at that point, a few couple of years later. Right. I'm trying to remember the dates exactly, but you were, you were there until you weren't. And then what happened exactly? Um, actually the, the reason I stopped wrestling again was at, when I stopped wrestling for Metro pro was the same time I stopped wrestling altogether. Yeah. I was just doing it on the weekends. You know, again, I was, I was just doing it. Like I wasn't trying to get anywhere with it. And, um, so I was working as a security supervisor and I got a, I got a job offer to become a security director up in green Bay. And, um, so that was it. Like I had to make you the had decision. To move. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and, it, and it was like, from a wrestling perspective, it was heartbreaking because I had just came to you with the idea for Zeitgeist. <laughs> yeah. Just kicked that off. And that, <laughs> that was like weird and fun. And, um, you know, I think, I think the uh, I think WWE was watching and they stole it and gave it to the Wyatt family. And, exactly. Um, but you know they it was I was having fun in Kansas City doing that and then I was also working for uh, Herb Simmons over at SICW mm -hmm. and I was I was running an angle where I was really running down St. Louis wrestling and it was going to lead to um, the the big payoff was going to be Gary Jackson beat me in a match. Oh yes. And in you know defending St. Louis's honor. So, um, I had to basically just abandon everything because I had a wife and a kid and I had to take care of them and, you know, had a chance to more than double my income. So, well, yeah, yeah. you had to take that. I mean, you, you said you liked just, you were having fun. You wanted to work on the weekends. And I, I tell people all the time that the biggest sort of, um, guilt thing I had about being a uh, indie wrestling promoter was that. I enjoyed people like you who, um, you know, I know it's sort of like not, not the old school philosophy, you know, I, you know, I can just imagine, you know, some of the old school guys saying like, well, just a weekend warrior. I want someone that's dedicated, you know, but that, but that's mm -hmm. not, you had already been through 
everything and you already knew what to do. So it wasn't like you were just a greenhorn, just wanted to, you know, learn how to do it every once in a while. But uh, it was people like you who I enjoyed having there because you were like me. I mean, this wasn't my full-time gig. I wasn't going to try to make money off being a wrestling promoter because it doesn't exist. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, I enjoyed people that didn't take it too seriously, had a lot of fun doing it. And, what you know, A, weren't trying to make enough money or be a huge star at some point because, I don't know, I, I won't say it won't ever happen, but the chances of that are very unlikely. So, um, you know, that, that was what was fun. I always felt bad for the guys that put their life on hold for like 25 years trying to get that big call. And then they're in their mid forties and they've been a stock overnight stock guy somewhere and just have never been able to do anything because they're waiting for, you know, a very slim chance of something happening on a big stage. So I don't know. That's why guys like you made it fun to do that. And it, it was, yeah, it was, there's, there's no pressure, you know, it's, it's like, um, it's it's like it's like writing a book without a deadline you know sure. like if if you're just doing doing like a little project on your own or whatever instead of like i've i've written on my own with no deadlines and i've also been a sports writer where i had a deadline you know i had several deadlines every day and um writing on my own was way more fun and that's kind of what that's kind of what it felt like with with wrestling where it was like i i could do what i wanted to do and as much as i loved working with metro if something, if, if if things were turning in a way I didn't like, I could just be like, well, I think I'll just probably pick up a few extra hours at work instead. Sure. You know, yeah. I, I'll just, I'll just stop the wrestling thing. It's funny. Some people work better under pressure and I totally understand that. But then some people equally work just as good without pressure because, you know, you're doing it more for, you know, you're not stressed out. You're not, you know, it's not, it's not, you're, you're open to doing more things and being more open creatively. And just, I, I feel like in wrestling a lot of times, you know, because everyone is sort of, you know, paranoid is sort of a strong term because on this indie level is not really that that way. But you know, it's just a, if you were able to do a lot of stuff without stuff being on your mind, weighing heavy, um, you do better sometimes. And I I think a lot of people are like that. But um, yeah, tell, talk about your and I want to talk about your books because you um, you were the first person that I knew. I mean, you 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 wrote your books in an era where um, wrestling books were really big in the WWF when I was up there, you know, it, it became a wrestling book boom there in the attitude era. And, um, mm-hmm. and so you wrote a couple books and they really give a perspective of someone on this level, which I think a lot of people don't understand. And uh, were you happy with those? Um, the first one I was not, um, I went through a traditional publisher and it just, it just wasn't a good experience. And I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't happy with hearing from more people who said they read and enjoyed my book than the number of book sales that were showing up on my royal royalty statement. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I thought I, I just, I, I really didn't enjoy that part of it and I didn't enjoy feeling like I was the uh, target consumer for my publisher. They wanted me to buy books and go out and try to sell them. Yeah, sure. So it was, it was, called a traditional publisher but it was basically a vanity publisher and um the day my contract was up with them i had a rewrite of that a a re-release ready to go um but i ended up self-publishing the others and and had a good time with them you know that um they're both out of print now i i took the the one that was my memoir out of print because i don't feel like that's written um by the man I am today. I know it I, would be hard to look back at, you know, decades later and see what you wrote. Yeah. And, and it was a, it was a way toned down version of my first book. I mean, that one was raunchy, 
but um i um uh, i took that one out of print for that reason and i took the other one out of print which was called the professional wrestler in the world of sports entertainment which was way too wordy i should i mean i could have had a two-word title um but so a quick quick backstory to that one i actually reached out to a publisher who's published several wrestling books and pitched the idea to them trying to get it traditionally published uh-huh. and the next thing i knew larry matasek um from over in st louis sure it was announced that he had a book coming out with like f- from that publisher so i mean we're talking like six seven months after they ignored my query letter and um then next thing i know they're announcing that he's going to be writing a book about how to how to be a wrestler and interesting um, yeah so i i just thought you know what I'm going to knock this out myself and I'm going to self publish it and I'm going to have it released before his. And I, and I like Larry. I've never had any animosity towards him over it. Sure. Um, you know, I don't think he even had any clue that, uh, you know, I had no idea this was going on. I mean, Larry, Larry Matisic was a, a big name in the territory era of, uh, St. Louis wrestling, you know, being an announcer and being, you know, friends with Brody and, um, yeah. you know, he passed away just a couple of years ago, but yeah, I mean, he had more, uh, I guess, uh, I suppose a little bit more mainstream cachet than you, but, um, mm. you know, I, I think I know the publisher you're talking about and I, <laughs> they, they yeah, don't exactly, I mean, it was, it was, yeah, they're called ECW press. They don't exactly have like all like big name books. So, yeah. Yeah. And, um, so, but I self published it. And then after a while, um, you know, it, it did fairly well, actually, it, you know, I sold it in paperback and on Kindle through Amazon. And um, then after a while, I just decided, you know what, I don't even really care about the sales. I just want this information in people's hands because I think it can help. And so I put it, um, I, I let Missouri Wrestling Revival um, put it on their website. Yeah. Just one chapter at a time. And I just made it available for anybody to read. Um, and I, I actually found out later that it was being used at Tufts University uh, for really? some yeah, they're doing something about pro wrestling, and one of the guys in the class reached out and said, "Hey, just so you know, your book's being used for this." And I was like, "Oh, well, well you're su- you're a very good writer, man. You are. You was a very good time. I appreciate it." Um, uh, I always thought you were like, you know, as you know, we've discussed. You've tried to, you tried to be a, a writer for WWF, WWE, and um, I mean, yeah. you probably were going to go up there and really be disappointed with how it was really ran. But, uh, <laughs> but on paper, you could have easily had the talent to be there. Yeah, I I appreciate that, um, and I think you're right. And you know, looking back on it, I mean, I was you know, devastated when I got the rejection letter, but, you know, looking back on it, I actually have that framed. Um, (laughs) How many people can get rejected in writing from WWF? Come on. (laughs) Yeah. Just, just to kind of remind me that, you know, whatever I'm going for in life, even if I don't get it, it's not, uh, not necessarily the worst thing. I mean, I I wouldn't have lasted three months there. No, the problem, you're, you're very similar to me. Um, like you said, you're, you're outspoken and, um, Mm -hmm. Uh, when Adam Pierce went to go work at WWE and him obviously having a connection with Kansas City and about so many of our shows, I, I told him, I'm like, you know, Adam, you, you may not last that long. Now, I've been wrong, but also Adam went up there when he was like 40, 
you know, or whatever, like high Mm -hmm. 30s. And if I would have gone up there at that age, much like you, you would have known after, you know, a couple decades of learning how to shut your mouth and bite your tongue when you shouldn't say stuff. Uh, When I was 24, it was way harder to do that. So so, uh, I had a real problem with – it wasn't even me being uh, bad. I could just picture you being the same same shoes I was. It wasn't like I was even really saying anything negatively or being a jerk on purpose or anything like that. It was just me saying stuff that I thought was helpful, but really uh, to someone in a corporate environment, it would be looked at as someone ruffling feathers. And, you know, oh, that, that's, uh, I, I have a feeling you might, you might have met the same fate I did, but who knows? Who knows? Yeah. No, I, I, I think I would have. And, and the reason I think I would have is because that's what actually got me, you know, I, I wasn't like in a position of power in WLW or anything, but that's what got me a seat next to Harley was because I was that guy. I was the guy who was very vocal, very outspoken, would fight for my ideas, would tell him when I thought he was wrong. And um, there were times that I don't, you know, I think it was an inconvenience and probably times that it was annoying, but I think he always respected that about me. He knew he wasn't going to, I wasn't going to BS him. I was going to tell him what I really thought because I had the greater good of the business and of his business in mind. Yeah, that's not always shared at a corporate level, but at like a mom and pop place, definitely more more loved in that perspective. Definitely. Um, yeah. yeah, I. Uh, speaking of Metro Pro and and you've mentioned Trevor Murdoch, can you believe? It's hard for me to believe that Trevor Murdoch, ten years after being Metro Pro champion, is becoming like a, a big part of the NWA as a multi-time champion. I mean, is it yeah. hard to believe to see that still? It's fun. Not nothing against Trevor. I just, I it came late to him in life, and I think it's cool. Yeah, um, he and I used to have conversations about. He always wanted to just be himself, and I like I would argue against it. You know, I would say, um, you know, Triple H had to be a, a Greenwich snob before he could become, you know, uh, before he could before he could let his real personality shine through. Sure. And and my argument was always, you have to really connect with people as a character before you can evolve into your real self. The same with Mick Foley. You know, he was mankind, and he had to. He had to earn people caring about Mick Foley. Um, and I think that, you know, it happened. It, yeah, most definitely, uh, you know, <laughs> the fact that it's happening in his 40s. Um, but he's finally getting to do what he always wanted to do. And that was to just go out there and be the real him and connect with people as, as the real him, as the real version of himself. Um, I, I think it's awesome. I'm happy for him. And I think he's uh went out and did some he, he's went out and done some really um impressive things i mean i i'm I, I i pace when i talk on the phone i'm pacing now and i'm just about blown up uh, so so to think of a guy that's my age and a lot bigger than me going out there and still working it's it's pretty uh pretty impressive yeah no it's it's still i still remember him pulling up at metro pro and working shows and you know obviously he's the ups and downs of the business come with every worker that stays in it as long as him but man it's uh mm-hmm. it's cool to see him do what he's doing now uh yeah before i let you go i did i, I did want to bring up uh because you said your your was it your mom or your grandma was a fan of uh of danny little bear my mom was okay. yeah. Well, I don't know if I ever told you this, but um, now seems as appropriate as any because I I doubt I'm going to have one of the little bear family members on here. So <laughs> when I was did the uh, when I did this Central States documentary, Casey on the mat, I mm-hmm. um, of course when I 
And that that's something too, that when I go back and look at the documentary, I wish I could have done it 10 years later because I had just more experience and I could have used better equipment and it would have just been better overall. But, you mm-hmm. know, I did it then because I, I was afraid they were all going to pass away, which they all basically have at this point. But, uh, one, uh, you know, when I went into these interviews with Harley and Bob Geigel and Roger Kirby and all these people, I had a list of names that I wanted them to come and on basically name association and, it, you know, Rufus R. Jones and Bulldog Bob Brown, Mike George, all these people that, you know, Mike George is still around, but everyone else was, was gone or whatever. And uh, mm-hmm. one name that obviously had to be on there was Danny Little Bear because he was a big baby face in the Central States Territory. Everybody liked Danny Little Bear. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm interviewing all these people at different places, I think, I, I don't know if you're on that show, but Harley, I interviewed Harley at the Harrisonville Community Center before a show. And mm-hmm. um, I interviewed him, guy, all these people. And I would, it would always come to, so uh, give me some thoughts on Danny Little Bear, you know. And their their answers were almost exactly the same. And they would always be like, Really big fan favorite, real good wrestler, good in the ring, but I wouldn't want to hang out with him outside of the ring. And then someone would say, like, you know, Bob Geigel would say, like, great, you know, great guy, great wrestler to have on your roster, but not the kind of guy I wanted to associate outside of the ring. And they all said mm-hmm. this. And it left me as when I'm produ- you know, when I'm editing it together, it left me in a weird situation because it wasn't like they were putting over the big baby face strong. They were just sort of <laughs> they were they were sort of saying he was good, but not a good person in a way. And I, you know, I wasn't trying to be I wasn't trying to disparage Danny Little Bear in any way because I've never met him. But mm-hmm. uh, so I, I put in there's a section on the the documentary they all talk about people and that was in there and we move on or whatever the next day it, it when it, it premiered and i get an email from a sprint email and it's from matt little bear and i <laughs> open it up and man he gave me a tongue lashing about how dare i have you know disparaged the name of danny little bear and i really didn't i didn't mean to but like that was just they all said the same thing and i was like and i basically told them that i'm like look man i am very sorry i wasn't trying to ruin your childhood or you know any name that your dad did because everybody really liked him but you know i it's it's the thing about you know you it's you never meet your heroes is you know sort of works <laughs> with this but um yeah, that, so that's what I think. And, I, and I've kicked around. Maybe I should have Matt Little Bear on here because I, I wonder what he – I mean, I'd let him, you know, dump all over me. I don't care uh, <laughs> about, like, how I shouldn't have done that because maybe I shouldn't have. I don't know. But I didn't know him, and um, it's sort of like the same night when the Central States documentary aired and we had a showing at Memorial Hall. And mm-hmm. before um, – but when I was interviewing people, I was getting numbers from Bob Geigel. You know, who who should I talk to? And oh, here's this guy, here's that guy. I said, what about Butch Reed? Because you know, being a WWF fan, I wanted to have Butch Reed on here. I grew up watching Butch Reed, and he was like, no, no, not Butch Reed. Uh, he's a bad guy. You know, and he would just he would sort of say that. And I'm like, okay. And wow. then uh, I didn't have Butch Reed in there because I, at the time Bob Geigel was my. <laughs> he was my hero in this whole thing, like helped me do it all, and I loved Bob Geigel. So then I'm yeah. at the documentary premiere, and I'm like in a suit, and I'm about to introduce everybody, and I turn around, and it's friggin' Butch Reed, and he's like, "Yeah, uh, no one interviewed me for this show, but I figured I should be here." 
And I'm like, uh, <laughs> yes, sir. Right away, sir. Let me, here's a chair. You can sit on stage with everybody else right up there. And he sat in for that and was cool. And like, everything was fine. He was in his cowboy yeah, boots. Awesome. He looked like he could, beat, was awesome. he looked like he could still beat the crap out of anybody in the room, you know? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I, I never got to interview Bush Reed, but, uh, those are guys that I know you spent time around, or at least Butch, you spent time around cause he was still getting booked for wrestling until just a few years before he passed away. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And he was, you know, the funny thing is the guy, I mean, he wasn't going to go out there and do any moonsaults or anything, but he never did that before. Oh. You know, but he, he, he would still, he could still work. I, I, I was always I always regretted that I never got a chance to work a singles match with him. Yeah, you know, we worked several times. We tagged together. We tagged against each other, and um, but I never got to work a singles one on one with him. And I thought we could we could have had a lot of fun. <laughs> Did you do you have any good stories of like picking up one of the boys for Harley shows and driving with them like three hours and having some kind of you know revelation with somebody? Um, I really didn't. I really didn't pick anybody up. Um, I mean there was. I was at the hotel just down the road from the St. Louis airport when Bret Hart got picked up by Harley. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that was, that, that was kind of, uh, maybe, a maybe not my most shining moment. We had a whole lot of beers and I ended up telling Brett that I thought the Montreal screw job was a work. And oh yeah. How'd that go? Assured, uh, you know what? He was really, he was really kind. Yeah. Um, and I, I had just watched a shoot interview with Shawn Michaels. And so he would say, okay, well, what did Sean say about this? What he, what he say about that? So I would tell him and he would uh, dismiss everything. And I found out the next day that Harley was supposedly upset with me for getting drunk and offending Brett. So I went up to Harley and I said, Hey, did I say anything that was a problem? He said, no. And I went to Brett, I went to Brett and I said, Hey, I hope I didn't offend you. I had a good time. Appreciate you talking to me. He said, no, man, it was just good to see somebody else getting drunk by Harley instead of me for a change. <laughs> So he, Bret he Hart's a cool guy. He he is a cool guy. No matter how angry he seems at some of these interviews, like I always thought, Brett was super cool. I did. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there, I, I heard stories about other people getting picked up. Um, there was a guy who um, claims that he was a trained wrestler, and he ended up being our music guy for a while. And actually, you met him uh, during your NWL days, but he uh, he ended up. His name was Mark Davis, and he picked oh, up the Barbarian. Oh, yes, the nickname. Yes, I know his nickname. <laughs> yeah, Stormy Davis. Yes. And um, Mark picked up the Barbarian one time for a show, and the Barbarian had a uh, leather trench coat on because he's a Barbarian. You know, he can wear whatever the hell he wants. And um, Mark Davis ended up showing up at the next show with a leather trench coat, just like like a long leather, like foot-length trench coat. And... Um, I think he picked up Dustin Rhodes one time and Dustin bladed. So Dustin got color at a, at a show. It was at uh, Remington's in Topeka. And then the next day we had a show in Jeff city, Missouri and Mark showed up with his head bandaged up <laughs> and he said he dropped a picture frame. Well, no, he had gone home and bladed. <laughs> so he dropped a picture frame on his own head because you know, you get home at four o'clock in the morning from a wrestling show. That's the time you want to hang a picture. <laughs> I'd hate to so, see what he would have done if he would have picked up Missy Hyatt. <laughs> I mean, because I don't know if he would have had a towel around or something, but uh, yes, I did meet him, and he is quite the character. So yeah, big big fan of mine. <laughs> uh, he was going to have a wrestling company a year, a few years ago, but it never really came to fruition for whatever reason. But uh, but yeah, it's a that's a whole other story, I'm sure. Oh yeah. Uh, but well, 
uh, Matt, I love I love talking about the my my good old days in independent wrestling promotion, but also uh, hearing about you and Harley and all the stories you had and what a career you had in wrestling. Even though um, you know, not you're not a worldwide name, but everyone in the Midwest knows who you are. And uh, I appreciate you coming on today, man. Cool, man. I appreciate it. Keep up the good work with the podcast. It's the worst territory. All right, welcome back to the worst territory in the world, Goff. What a great interview with Matt Murphy. So who are you trying to line up in the next couple weeks here um, in the uh, in-between episodes, shall we call, that we're not going to be doing the NWL? Well, I, the only one that I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be doing here in the next couple of days will be Little Cato, who was uh, the son of Lord Littlebrook, also the brother of beautiful Bobby, who wrestled for us at NWL. Um, he's going to he just turned 60 years old. And wow. he is uh, uh, if you're not if you don't know who Lord Littlebrook is, he was the king of the midget wrestlers back in the I mean, for half the most of the 20th century. Uh, he lived in St. Joe, Missouri. Um, I was always fascinated. I think I've talked to you about this, Gabe. I was fascinated that St. Joseph, Missouri, home of the Pony Express, was also the basically the home of midget wrestling for most of the territory days because Lord Littlebrook, who was from England, had moved to America and he ended up living in St. Joseph, Missouri. And uh, all the people that were around here all remember Lord Littlebrook uh, and his sons, Cato and Bobby, but also, you know, working up there, also Little Tokyo and like all these other guys that you might have remembered from WrestleMania 3 or just, you know, any of them. And and we've discussed and everyone knows that Fabulous Moolah was sort of the, I I think people call it the pimp of the women's wrestlers back in the day. And that's, that's just how it was. I, I mean, I hate it when people put, I don't, it's just, I'm not saying it was right or wrong, but at the time that's how it was. And Lord right. Littlebrook was sort of the, the go-to agent, whatever you would call him for a lot of the midget wrestlers back in the day. And, and his son, little Cato is the only one, unfortunately of the little, the little Brooks that are still alive that wrestled. And um, I didn't even know that Cato was old enough to have wrestled for Bob Geigel in Kansas city, but he did because wow. I, when you look at Cato, he doesn't look 60 years old to me, but like I said, he just turned that. So um, he does have some experience in central States. So we'll talk about that and just the life of uh, that his father had and uh, what him and his brother, you know, growing up in the, in the uh, the wake of Lord Littlebrook, and uh, just uh, I don't know, it'll be a fascinating to me. Like that stuff is very fascinating because obviously they had an uphill climb anyway, just for what the, you know their size, but uh, they ended up um, having a good career. So we'll see. Yeah, that should be a great interview. I can't wait to hear. Actually, the the knowing actually Jim Cornette put him over Lord Littlebrook as the greatest. Uh, midget promoter slash booker in the history. Sure. I mean, not that there was a lot of them, but I mean, well, he know, was the linchpin and the he was the linchpin at the time. I mean, right. he was the guy. He he was the moolah of the midget wrestlers, and yeah. that you know, midget wrestling was a uh, it, it would pop a town. It was a yep. featured attraction. It was something that didn't happen all the time. In fact, we don't even have midget wrestling now. You know, we were talking about like in the late nineties, Max Minnie and those guys, they uh-huh. would come, they were trying to sort of start another, you know, I remember super porky. Like they had them yeah. all like little Vader, little gold dust, little mankind. Uh, they tried to do that again, but that fizzled out quickly. But uh, you know, they, they, I mean, when was the last time you saw midget wrestling? They did some in, in TNA back in the day. But. Yeah. I, I honestly, I, 
I used to watch Lucha Libre a lot when I was a kid because I lived in a, a Hispanic part of town. So I and really all we got on our satellite was on like it was an apartment satellite was like Galavision and some other Hispanic channels. So I watched uh-huh. a lot of Lucha Libre. So I my midget knowledge is actually pretty up there with some of the best. So when I would see these guys get imported into the WWE, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've seen you know, Masquerita Sagrada or Masquerita. Yeah. Masquerita Sagrada. I saw all those guys on Lucha Libre, but I mean, yeah. In the, in recent memory, I mean, when they came into WWE, that was about it in the early, in like 94, 93. See, they were doing Max mini was there like 97. Was it 97? Okay. He was there yeah. during the, they were there during the attitude. Era oh, that, you're that right. Stuff. You're right. Yeah. D- yeah. You're right. I because remember shotgun that, Saturday night had some uh, mini matches too. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, you know, like I said, they were doing Vader mankind. So yeah. they had, they were there and on the roster at that point, but it just doesn't happen anymore. The only thing now they're basically now, uh, midget wrestling is just like a traveling circuit. There's a couple of them that go to yep. bars and they, they draw a pretty good crowds because they, they, you know, it's, a, <laughs> they it's legitimately do. It's something you don't see all the time. So it's, it's really cool to watch, but anyway, Kato, Kato will have a unique perspective. Definitely. So I'm looking forward to that, but uh, more, more NWL coming up down the pike. And then, um, you know, I continue to uh, search out guys that had just a cup of coffee. Tommy dreamer will come on at some point. Cause I do want to talk to Tommy about, um, they did run, I think two ECW shows in Kansas city at the uptown theater. And, uh, that's why it was so cool when we were trying to get NWL there at one point. Cause I'm like, Oh, we could do what they did, but it was, it was, it wasn't the perfect match Great for us, but uh, yeah, it's venue. a fun, it's a fun place to watch shows. And yeah, um, I just saw, I just saw Charlie Crockett, one of my favorite country singers down there. And it was yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I, I I had heard that they had run the Uptown Theater, which I was shocked about. I would love to. I mean, I don't know if you know, but I'm kind of a Tommy Dreamer fan. So yeah, I know. Well, we all are. If you meet Tommy, you'll love Tommy. But he's. Uh, he's I remember great. meeting. By the way, uh, there was a fan that asked a question, and I don't remember the answer. But um, I don't know if you were on the thread or not. I can't remember. Were some of the um, shows that we taped in St. Charles at that skating rink? Did we record those? The one with Dreamer on the show? Oh, that was uh, St. Peter's, I believe. St. Peter's? And that was, um, I'm sure that existed. I mean, I know that Tommy Dreamer's matches did. I mean, because that was where ACH was there, Tommy Dreamer. We had some pretty good names there. Um, I want to say we at least had handhelds there, you know? Um, I don't know. I don't know where those were. Remember, we were trying to tape some of those shows to sort of use as a uh, enticing of like fight club memberships or whatever, you know, we were trying to make those sort of added bonus things and who knows where those are, but they were never widely released is what I'm saying. Cause somebody was talking. No, no. So yeah, somebody was talking about those shows and I was like, Oh my gosh, I remember the old skating rink setup and what a pain in the, (laughs) but it was, but I remember, um, you know, meeting dreamer at that show and, Uh (laughs) and famously you were like, Hey, Hey Gabe. Hey, hey, aren't you a huge mark for this guy? Do you want to come over and say <laughs> hi to him? And I was like, Son of oh, it's such a respectful introduction. Yeah, yeah. no, I look, uh, yeah, he's he's the one guy that you get away with and he's not going to pick on you very much. Oh, but uh, we always talk about Tommy Dreamer coming to Kansas City the first time and uh, and we <laughs> they're at Kauffman Stadium and Tommy Dreamer, uh, 
was walking through the crowd and he was basically in full gimmick and you could just see him like he was walking into the Hammerstein ballroom or whatever. And he was just splitting the crowd. And, uh, you know, like what he wears to the baseball game is not too far from what he wears to a wrestling ring. So he looked, it was just funny to see him in that crowd of people, but anyway, uh, looking forward to that. He'll, he'll definitely be on here at some point. Um, you know, somebody else that I want to talk to just from a Kansas city perspective, uh, from football is Darren Drozdoff. I haven't talked to him oh, wow. in so many years and yeah. I used to talk to him so often. And the fact that draws is still, you know, kicking it. And, you Thank know, God. I mean, man, it has been 20, almost 25 years since he was paralyzed from the neck down. And, um, you know, he played for the Denver Broncos. So he has perspective on the chiefs at the very least, but, uh, you know, he, uh, he had, so he had quite the, uh, he had quite the short life in wrestling uh, before his tragedy. So um, I think it's awesome that he's still alive. And yeah. I'm glad that he is. And he's a really good dude. He was. And Correct me if I'm wrong, but hasn't he regained like movement in his arms or his finger? Like, you know, so he's not neck down anymore? It, it may be some arm movement. I'm not sure. Uh, it was, I mean, this has been a couple of decades plus now, but I haven't talked to him in probably 15 years, but these are just some of the guys I have connections with that um, I think are really interesting people. And I'm trying to get some guys that, you know, obviously not everyone talks to. So, um, but yeah, he's, he's a really great guy. You'd really like him. He's uh, obviously, he always had like an awesome sense of humor and he was the first guy I saw after Owen passed away. Uh, he was backstage just bawling like a baby, like everybody was, but uh, I just remember him backstage and him being part of that um but anyway enough tragedy talk yeah enough tragedy talk let's talk about so we as you said at the top we're getting ready to officially enter wrestlemania season and as i told you before we went on the air quote unquote um i want to kind of pick your brain about a few little items that have been floating around out there one of which is so apparently there's been some big money matches thrown at stone cold steve austin now if you've seen his recent Instagram post or whatever. Homeboy is jacked. He always but, has been, but well, yes. But like we're talking like he hasn't been in this good a shape in 20 years, probably. Like looks incredible. He looked pretty good mm -hmm. last year at WrestleMania. So one of the rumors going around is that Rock may not be able to make it. And again, these are all just rumors, speculation, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that he he was being pitched to go against Roman Reigns. And then the other rumor was that he was also pitched to go against Brock Lesnar, both for a truckload of money. Chris, would you like to see any one of those matches? Stone Cold and Brock? Or Stone um, Cold and Roman? Well, Stone Cold and Brock would be my personal choice, only because that was the match that made Stone Cold quit the company. Quit. Yeah. And uh, so that was... Um, gosh, we were talking about... I don't know if you remember the video show Bite This... That was on WWF.com. Uh -huh. And I produced that show for like three years, two, three years, right in the prime of. And so to the two, uh, <laughs> the two sort of careers that were ruined by bite this were uh sean michaels and stone cold now facetiously they obviously didn't get uh, ruined but right. sean michaels went on bite this and that's when he i was just reminded of that uh, again this week that's when sean michaels came on and said that triple h was the first champion that had deserved the title in a very long time and that was right after he had beaten the rock or, you know it was after rock had dropped it right. and rock took that super personal and obviously did something to where the fact that sean michaels had 
returned for the initial show of SmackDown, and then he never showed up again because wow. of his what he said on Bite This. And then, then what happened was later on, Stone Cold came on and was super pissed about being, you know, I, I don't know how we got him on. It just happened to be that he was on there and he was mad about, you know, what was going on in creative. He was just burying everything. And then uh, that week is when he left because he was asked to lose to Brock Lesnar. I think things were just going wow. to a head in his personal life and his professional life. And I just think he had had enough for a while. But yeah, he did not want to lose a match to Brock Lesnar on Raw. I think it was a it was a proposed match. I don't know what the uh, final say was from Vince, but I think Stone Cold just thought you're giving away free stuff in that era. You shouldn't be giving that away on a Raw. And um, I, you know, Stone Cold, I didn't think has ever really been one besides Jeff Jarrett to lose to anybody, but right. uh, <laughs> I think or to even have a program with. But um, you know, I don't know. I thought he. I, that would be an interesting one to see. I don't know how you. I don't know who wins that one. It would have to be Brock. I mean, I. I don't know Wait. how else you would you would keep him around. You Stone Cold would have to lose to either one of them. Those are their top stars. How do I? I can see him having a match with Roman easier than I can with Brock. Brock is so physical, and I I could see Roman playing ball a little bit. Not that Roman's not physical, but I can see Roman playing a little bit more. You know, the because Kevin Owens was the perfect opponent for him last year because, you know, you're just going to throw some hams and, you know, go home after a brawl through the crowd. Yeah, but you're, like, with the Brock Lesnar match, the, you're expecting what? brutality in a Brock Lesnar match, yes. Right. So, and like, is he going to take an F5? Like, is he in that good a shape? I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I want to see either one of them. You know, I, I think the the... The the best shot is going to be again because he would have to lose both of those matches, right? But also, like I think that his best thing is like just go against guys that are all, not throwaways, but can kind of have that easier match, like a Baron Corbin or I don't know. Does he even still work? I don't know. I have like re- the Miz type guys yeah. that can go out and lose, and it doesn't matter, and you can doesn't still have, send people happy. And like yep. you know, these are back in the day when Vince was in charge, and I was there. He would say anything's on the table. Just start throwing out some names. And this was twenty some years ago. So at that time, you still had some viable people that could come back from the past and have matches, whether it was. Former NWO guys, former WCW guys. The only right. person that was off the table was Macho Man Randy Savage. And like, you know, take your guess how why that was. But uh, everyone else was open season. And so now as we progress into the future, unfortunately, uh, outside of John Cena and maybe a couple others, um, there's not a lot of guys that can come back from the last 25 years that would have that kind of impact. So now you have to go back to the Stone Colds, the Rocks. You know, mm-hmm. Brock Lesnar has been a big one. Roman Reigns, John Cena. Those are your huge stars. Now you have, you know, Randy Orton is another guy that's a huge star who knows how his physical, you know, how physical he could get at any point in his career soon because of his injuries. But, um, you know, Batista, you know, there's some bigger names, but when you're talking about Stone Cold, you're talking about one of, if not the greatest, you know, star ever in WWE history. Totally. So totally. Um, it's, I don't know. <laughs> Yes, you want him to you you're in a position where he has to win. Okay. I mean, he's coming back for a cup of coffee. He has to look good in the end. And you really can't do that with either of the top two guys you're talking about. But yeah, I didn't like Miz, Steen again, somebody at that, you know, yeah. a, a heel. So it has to be obviously not Steen, but um, you know, I don't know. I we'll see what happens, but all right. Prediction who wins the World Rumble? I mean, the odds on favorite is Cody Rhodes because he's they I'm surprised that they're promoting him so much instead of making him a surprise entrant and winning it. 
Um, it sort of reminds me of like when Ric Flair went into 92 and you knew he was coming in and I mean, he had already been in the company for a few months at that point, but, um, you know, it was all sort of built around Ric Flair. And then when he got number three, uh, you got to watch him progress through that. I was shocked that they promoted Cody Rhodes before, you know, instead of just the big surprise return because WWE are, you know, they can unlike independent promotions they can be okay with having uh shocking entrance you know you don't have to promote cody rose going into that now with that being said i have seen and i've watched and i've enjoyed the the comeback uh vignettes about cody yeah. rose so i think those have been really well done and maybe that's the reason why they wanted to do that but um but anyway it, it, cody all 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 roads point to cody rose especially hey. with uh, hey I don't know. I don't know what else is going to happen. I, do, do you have anybody besides him that could be a viable person at this point? I mean, no, I, I, I was kind of thinking Cody Rhodes. I mean, they keep sniffing around Seth Rollins, you know, like I, I but I don't watch the product enough, honestly, to like have like a real like, you know what? This guy's going to win. You know, everyone's at, at this point. I think it's become less about who wins and more about who the surprises are going to be. Like, is Matt Cardona going to be there? Is CM Punk going to be there? Sure. You know, all the speculation. I love what I love about the internet is all these leaked entrance sheets, uh-huh. you know, where it's like, oh, they, this person got a leaked, you know, entrance sheet for the Royal Rumble. And it's always horse. Punk. Yeah. They're always yeah. wrong. They're always wrong. Always wrong. So I, I enjoy seeing that kind of stuff because it's so funny and photoshopped. It's like CM Punk is going to be number thirty, and it's just like, oh come on, guys. This reminds me of Shawn Michaels going into like it's like ninety five or ninety six. The one where it was like Shawn Michaels and twenty nine other people, you know. And it was like, and now it feels like Cody Rhodes is the one that's going to yeah. have to win. Yeah. Not that everybody else is insignificant, but like, it's where where's the story going ahead? Where's the story going into WrestleMania? I mean, you've done Brock and Roman enough to where they don't need this, you know. They don't. And and yes, I do agree. Like even the surprises in the Rumble aren't they? They haven't even been. You know, the guys that you wanted to see back in the day where Honky Tonk Man would come in or whatever. You right. don't even see that anymore because there's just not a lot of those level people. It's that's sad, but there, you know, yeah. some of the females that have come back in the last couple of shows, it's I, been I cool. Thought, that's been cool because yeah. you didn't, they weren't overexposed. You didn't have a hundred of these happening where you see that, but um, you know, I don't even know who they could bring in to do that other than, you know, I would be a fan of, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of just any old guy from like the eighties or even early to mid nineties coming into doing that. But, Who's out there that hasn't been done to death on legend shows? I, I, right. I don't know. I don't know. CM Punk's not coming back, by the way. That would be the ultimate uh, pop there, but uh, I no don't. Chance. It doesn't. It doesn't seem like he's going to not be taking a paycheck from AEW. Right. For a little while. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Goff. Well, it is now time to wrap this show up. But before we go, let's do my favorite segment on the face of God's green earth, and that's where we put you, Chris Goff, in the hot seat. This week, Chris, your menu consists of, of course, the famed Mount Rushmore. You can do Hogan's History. You can do the Hot Seat. Or that's it. That's going to be your three options. Huh. Um, <laughs> I'm going to do Hogan's History because yeah. I've never done that one. All right. So as we all know, Hogan is a teller of stories, a, a, a spinner <laughs> of fibs, if you will. Exaggerative a little exaggerative a little bit so what i want to focus on for hogan's history is you spent how many years total did you spend in the wwe six 
six years told in the WWE producing, uh, writing, doing all that kind of stuff. So in that time, what I want to ask you is if you could go back and rewrite an angle from that, from that point or an angle that you had a big hand in, uh, maybe no pun intended, what angle would you write again or change in some way, shape or form to make it better? <laughs> I thought this had something to do with Hulk Hogan. Well, no, it's just it's revisionist history. You want to go back and I see, and, 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 I see. Yeah. I'm gonna go back. Well, I didn't slam. I did slam Andre once. He was eight foot two, six hundred and thirty-two pounds. Wow! And uh, it was in front of two hundred fifty-two thousand people in in uh, in the Pontiac Saginaw, Silver Michigan. <laughs> um, let's see. I mean, you know, stuff that not necessarily stuff I would want to rewrite, but stuff that I wish we could have seen back in the prom. There you go. I think the matches that I wanted to see and not even that they would be good, but things that you just never will get to see that you wish you would. I think always Hogan Austin. I think you always wanted to see that match because I, you know, it's just two, two huge stars in their rightful era, even though the rock has obviously the, it become a much bigger star in the world of entertainment than stone cold i think it's hard it's hard for you to argue to me that stone cold and hogan aren't the faces of their eras even you know stone cold more than the rock and wrestling you know and um so that would that was one i always wanted to was see. that close to happening Yes, it was. And if you, you know, Bruce has talked about it, but I was there during that time. Uh, it was it was either Hogan Stone Cold or Hogan Rock. And they thought that they could they were going to try to steal one at the time by putting Hogan Rock together because they were going to build to Hogan Stone Cold later. I, I honestly believe that and we talked about this in the office that they thought Hogan Stone Cold was the tippy top. But they wanted to go before they got there. They wanted to go Hogan Rock. And, you know, we all know what happened. It was an awesome moment at WrestleMania 18. But I think they wanted Hogan Stone Cold. But, you know, I believe the, you know, the rumors are out there about who's going to win, who, who, who's going to job to who Hogan or Stone Cold. And I'm sure that was a legitimate problem. That would have been a that's a that was a Vince McMahonism that would have to work that out. But uh, I want to see that. And I wanted to see uh, Stone Cold Goldberg, you know, just because it was like interesting. It was just the two matches that um, signified just uh, it, it, they just symbolized everything in wrestling at the time. And, um, you know, those are the ones that that I that will never see. I, you know, I always I held out hope that you'd have and I you, I don't even I wouldn't want to see it now. Hogan Stone Cold. I think they could probably have a match. I just wouldn't want to see it now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know. As far as like when I was actually on the writing team, I think the one that I would love to rewrite would be obviously the Katie Vick storyline. But um, I don't it's become so uh, synonymous with horrible and it's become so well known. I'd hate to take that away from it at the very least. Um, You know, it's just funny. That era of time was when Vince McMahon really was into backstories and really every wanted everyone on the roster to have some kind of backstory similar to a uh, you know a soap opera and um and you know even though people just bury that uh he was trying and i at the time i was fully on board with understanding that you know we have to make these people you know like we were talking about earlier we have to make these people different how do you make them different and we were still in an era where people were different because you had different size people big people they still had masks all that stuff but um he just wanted to have a little bit more understanding of who they were other than just going out and wrestling and uh even though i mean you know, Gabe, some people still bury Undertaker and Kane and a Paul Bear and that whole storyline, but that's a very, I, I know great. you had really good, you had great players in positions to be yeah. really good in that, but 
even though it's so crazy and wacky and Paul Bear screwed his mom and that's how it's his, he's your daddy and all this stuff. That was like, uh, it was, a, it was fascinating television. It was, I wish we had more of that, but, uh, for many reasons, I guess we won't, but, um, I mean, the, you guys, what you guys did really well in the attitude area and I could era. And I can say you guys, because you were there is you really did have a lot. I mean, most everybody on the roster had a little story attached to him so you always yeah. knew okay test and so and so is involved in this and like Vin vince russo started that you know yeah. i'll give him credit for that he yeah. was he started that because he was vince knew like vince mcmahon even when i was there and beyond he was the king of the main storylines and then vince russo helped out with those but also took care of the mid and low card as well yeah. and gave them all something about them now whether those things about them were good or not is you know i think a lot of people watch the attitude era now and they say like it's not as good as you thought and, and that's always easy to say but at the time it was really fascinating to watch Oh, it was dude it no but everyone i knew i i i'm that type of guy that like when someone finds a new band i'm like i found them first you know so when everyone started watching wrestling i was like really happy but also really mad because i was like i've been a weirdo mark since i was eight years old and now all of you guys are jumping in the bandwagon but it also made it really fun because everybody was watching wrestling everybody i i couldn't i couldn't get you know a friend that didn't watch wrestling religiously on monday nights you know and it was it was just such a good era i mean regardless of if the wrestling was good or the stories were good people were watching like yeah and I, I miss i miss the era of being able to have backstories and yeah. and you know look a lot of the stuff if you go back uh, unfortunately if you go back and going back to jay briscoe type stuff uh, if you go back and watch some of the stuff in the uh, attitude era and and try to put it on tv now it would be a problem because there oh, were so 100%. many things it wasn't just you know a lot of things would be deemed sexist or even racist to a yeah. degree or oh my god and, and it wasn't meant that way and one thing that i was talking about uh, earlier with some people uh, last week was, you know, uh, the problem I have now is that people just don't have a long enough attention span or they will not let anything breathe to the very end because the bad guys always lose, you know? So, so if this person is racist or sexist or a jerk or uh, they're, they're chauvinistic or whatever, at the end, those people will look bad and the good guys will prevail. That's the best thing about wrestling, but it's funny. Like the first chapter of those stories, people always chew them up and spit them out and say how horrifically offensive they are and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, you have, have to hate this person before they go on to lose to the heroes so i don't know that and they just don't do that anymore so now it's all about the flips i i and i and i will tell you though that the old school philosophy can still work and the proof is in the pudding because the highest i believe the highest rated segments on especially smackdown are the bloodline segments and that's all story that's sure. all Sami Zayn, the usos roman all that kind of stuff. And they are the most entertaining segment of the show. You could throw the best wrestling match on that show. And I'm going to be more entertained by the bloodline segment. And I'm a guy that likes the, you know, the drop toe holds and the, you know, spinning cross faces and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, as far as a big production goes, give me the bloodline storyline anytime, anytime. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, and I, I think that uh, storylines will always draw well, if you yep. give them enough time to breathe. Absolutely. And I do think that, that they do sort of play off the one thing that I always think you still can play on, which is, you know, power. Like if you, if you play, 
You can play like an evil dictator, evil, powerful person in wrestling. Uh, You can still play that route and go with the, you know, the powerful versus the, you know, the the little man and try to have the little man beat him or whatever. Uh, That will still work. But, you know, you can only do that in small doses. You know, you can only do that with certain people. You can only do that, you know, back in the day when you had I I said this before. I don't know if like you could have. Uh, Hogan and Randy Savage fighting over Elizabeth now because right. I think some people would call that sexist and you know making her a, a, an object and you know like I, yeah but that was the point that was the point to make Randy look like a jealous person and um, you know leading to them disliking each other right. and ultimately he loses so you know I whatever I that's just a got, days gone by man days gone by now we're left with nonsensical storylines that last two weeks and then we're on to the next thing anyways chris this has been a fun episode of the worst territory in the world the interview with matt murphy was great um talking you know some some news and tidbits is also a lot of fun so i'm looking forward to the next time we get together and shoot the proverbial crap and talk about the worst territory in the world guys don't forget leave us a five-star rating if you like what we're doing tell a friend about it spread the podcast around we got some really fun things coming for you guys and if you're on youtube uh don't forget to hit like and subscribe on the youtube channel as well um help us get noticed in the youtube algorithm um you guys have a lot of choices for podcasts um, especially about pro wrestling but we think we're covering a unique space and we hope you enjoy what we're doing So until next time, Chris, I will see you. Everybody have a great week. We'll see you next time right here on the worst territory in the world.